Audio conversation with Freeman Fly, recorded Friday, January 4th, 2013. I first heard of Freeman uh, through Red Ice Creations Radio, and that uh, could have been as long ago as six years ago. Uh, And since then, I've been following him off and on, mostly through his audio interviews. He did a podcast series for a while uh, through his website, freemantv.com. Um, you know, I have not seen many of his of his videos. Uh, as I was preparing for this interview, I realized that the, uh, most of his stuff is done on YouTube video format, and it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I can't speak to the the reality of much of what he's saying. And his conclusions are pretty far out, I gotta say. But I I do dig the fact that he is uh, so enthusiastic. Uh, you know, I I having talked to him now. And having followed him for a while through his through his audio stuff, I get the sense that uh, that the person you're hearing, you know, in this interview and on other v- interviews, is the real deal. I mean, this is I, I have a feeling he gets up in the morning and is just like this all day long. And, and the reason I actually sought him out for this interview was, you know, I had this sense, and I may have picked it up from from some of his audio interviews and just forgotten, but I certainly got the sense that this guy had had some sort of UFO contact experience. I don't know, it just was a, just was a gut feeling. Um, I called him up a couple days ago in, to prep this interview. We talked on the phone, it might have been as, as long as an hour. You know, the, one of the first questions I asked was like, hey, are you a... You know, do you have any uh, UFO contact experiences? And he was he was like, oh yeah, and he told me a story which he will retell in this interview, involving uh, Daytona Beach, Florida at night, which is pretty typical of people who have the contact experience. It reads just like uh, you know, right out of the textbook. Now, what is more interesting, and we try to explore a little bit, is that since that event, since his what we might infer as a as a UFO contact event. He, was, he had uh, multiple hours of missing time. He has since gone on to dig into this conspiracy stuff. Uh, in one interview, he was asked by the host, you know, Freeman, and how would you describe yourself? And he replied, I am a conspiracy theorist. And he was so forthright about it that I, that I, uh, I really dug it. And and his his uh, thoughts and his ideas are you know there's a spider web that is so uh, tightly knit and it's and to me the fascinating thing is that this came about as a result of his missing time experience he does he makes no bones about that and during the conversation I uh, I make a big effort to keep the focus on the UFO contact thing you know even when we get a little bit far afield which we sure do. I make an effort to like, now, how does this tie into the UFO contact thing? Now, uh, he uh, talks fast, which I like. I talk fast, too. And he covers a lot of ground, which I'm all for. You, the listener, if you're not familiar with him, may not be able to keep up with some of the references he's throwing out there. Now, I had been listening for the previous few days, prepping for this audio interview. I had been listening to his radio show and watching his online videos. And so I, I I knew where he was coming from because I had seen the references in his other, in his other stuff. So if you haven't seen his stuff, um, I apologize. You might feel a little bit like you're left in the dust, but um, all that said, uh, it feels like a very lively conversation. It goes for about two and a half hours, which is long. And I'm all for that. Uh, It takes a while to really, uh, you know, if you're going to dive into these waters, you got to explore them. And 
I would encourage you to listen to some of his audio shows. And there will be links on the homepage to his website, as well as a few of his YouTube videos. Once again, I can't speak to the pragmatic reality of what he's talking about, but I certainly can tap into the to the grand mythos of what he's he's uh, he's laying down. Uh, that may sound like a way out for me, so I don't get locked into some of the some of the stranger conspiracy stuff. But um, you know, it, it's really fun, and and that counts for something. And I feel strongly that um, you know he's doing some legitimate research. I had a great time with this interview. Please enjoy. Hey, Freeman, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Hey, well, thank you. It's great to be here, Mike. Good, good. Hey, just to, um, just to clarify things for the listeners, um, you and I did have a phone conversation a few days ago, um, you know, to prep this interview, which I thought went great. I think we talked for almost an hour. Yeah. Um, now, so here's my plan for this interview. I, you know, I know full well that um, you could fill up more time than either of us have for this conversation so what I'm going to attempt to do is, you know, wherever the conversation goes, I'm going to try to ease things back to the UFO abduction phenomena and its implications. Um, having listening to, having listened to you a bunch, I, I recognize that you're pretty well up on the phenomena and and uh, and how it, it's intertwined with these with these other areas of strangeness and um for, and for me the implications of all this are, are pretty mind-blowing so so you know wherever the conversations go at one point i'll kind of say "Ooh, let's let's see how this ties into the abduction thing right well you know i'm not just a researcher i am an experiencer as well so uh this has been something that's been at the heart of my story since day one uh for it's open ideas for me and concepts of genetic memory and how many things we hold on to throughout lifetimes and through, you know, genetic passings. Uh, and it makes me wonder about, you know, how much information is transferred from father to son or mother to daughter or, you know, any of those combinations thereof. Because I began with a, an avid curiosity into UFOs. And as a child at, you know, eight, nine years old, me and my best friend are sitting around discussing the UFOs that we had seen. Now, you know, for me now, I don't remember any of the events. I don't remember seeing anything as a child, but I remember us discussing it. And so <laughs> there must be something there. And through all that time, I, I really never knew what was going on, but I had some some strange and interesting correlations that came out into my life later with my family and with a, a picture I drew that I when I was 10 years old. Hey, before we jump straight into this, um, how would you describe yourself as far as what role you're playing right now in, in, um, in your persona, I guess? Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. Uh, I, I came up with Urban Shaman. Ooh, ooh, this is great. You're, you're jumping ahead to some of my questions. Great. Keep going. Why, would you, why did you choose that? Well, I'm a wanderer. I, I have wandered this earth alone, uh, but never been alone, you know, always with people, um, but always on my own path. And this has opened my eyes to the, well, synchronistic, amazing connections that the universe has for all of us. And so it really just came from the fact that I was a wandering shaman on some Chautauqua, you know, uh, trying to find my way. Yes, and the reason I ask this is because uh, prepping for this interview, what I've done is gone through and listened to a lot of your uh, 
you know, audio interviews, uh, the, your podcasts, your your downloaded videos on YouTube. And it, you answered that question once before. And I thought you're and, the, and I, you surprised me when you gave me the answer you just did about the, being a wandering shaman. And uh, what you had said before was that you were an unapologetic conspiracy theorist. And I was glad you said that the way you did. Well, yeah, there's no doubt about that. You know, that's a whole. So there's two sides to my whole story. One is my experiences, which are out of this world. I've you know, met the woman who carries a holy grail. I've uh, found the Ten Commandments on top of a mountain. I've been, you know, down, I've been blessed by Australian shamans and brought down to do the rituals with the Mayans at the pyramids at the call, uh, you know, all just by wandering around, just not being anything, just kind of just, you know, going here, there, and the other place, and everything leading to another place. Uh, but the conspiracy theory side uh, blended one world with the other without trouble. And so I, I really have two sides of me that I, I talk about. One is my experiences, and then the other is the research. You know, in the experience and the research, it is intertwined in some way. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people I have met, talked to, that have, um, you know, what would seem to be fairly wild theories, conspiracy theories, you know, whether that be about Atlantis or whether that be about, you know, 9-11. Um, and, you know, after talking to them, uh, they're very, you know, they're, they're coming from a very strong place of very real research. And then you realize that they've had um, UFO, what would be clearly called UFO abduction events in their life. Yeah, well, I guess you can put me right in that category that, yeah, as that, well. That's exactly uh, why I made the effort to call you is because you you fit that that perfectly. Yeah, yeah, you know, like I say, throughout my youth, I I had uh, just I studied everything on on Blue Book and all. You know, I read every UFO account, I read every abduction scenario, and I I knew everything at that time. You know, from a, from nine years old getting into it. Uh, and, and at 10 years old, I, I drew this picture and it, it ended up being an outline of galactic history. Now I had no idea. I was drawing it for an art contest at school in the fifth grade. This was 1977, right before star Wars came out. And, uh, I'm, I'm drawing this picture of the space shuttles flying through space. And I had what I thought in the center was a, a, um, a galaxy, a spiral galaxy, and then on the other side, a winged serpent. Now, I, you know, had this been six months later, these would have all been X-wings, and, you know, I thought a lot about how the media overwrites our internal dialogue. Uh, that whole imagery would have been destroyed had I uh, had a, <laughs> drawn it after Star Wars came out, because Star Wars had a huge effect on me, and still does, and still plays into all the theories, and everything that I've ever discussed. And with Walt Disney buying the Star Wars series now, it just plays even more and more and more. I mean, when we're done with weird stuff, our new magazine, you're going to see all of these connections and how everything outlines and lays out. I'm so excited about this. And uh, so I, well, what, what I did is I, I had these four space shuttles. And of course, the space shuttle titles are the Columbia Endeavor for the Discovery of Atlantis. And if you do any research into secret societies and to Freemasonry, you realize that they believe Atlantis is at the core of their history. Uh, whether or not you want to believe that there is a sunken city, if you haven't seen all of the sunken cities. And this is another thing that intrigued me as a child, where all of the ancient astronaut hypotheses 
because you know there are things in the ancient past that we cannot develop today there are uh, 1200 ton stones in Baalbek Lebanon that we could never ever even consider moving in the 21st century and yet you know here they stand from 3000 to perhaps 10000 years ago so this always intrigued me as well and I studied Eric von Daniken and every uh, ancient astronaut hypothesis I could get and this later led me to going to Kansas University to study ancient architecture so all of this has played a critical role but here I am with this picture of the Columbia Endeavor for the discovery of Atlantis space shuttles. And I wanted to put a really cool symbol on each of these space shuttles. Well, I sat there and I, I meditated on it. I remember so hard, like thinking about what I was going to put on there because I'd already put flames down the space shuttles, making them all, you know, cool and stuff. And I wanted to, to make a cool symbol on there. And I drew this somewhat X-like symbol, only one of the X lines is curved. And I thought to myself, well, that, that wasn't very cool. It kind of looked like a radar dish cut in half, you know? And I'm like, that, that's nothing. Oh, well. So I put it on each of the space shuttles. And this was in 77. So in 1996, was it? Uh, the, the serious mystery came out. Now I'm, oh, well, you know, so much of the story jumps ahead and through time, but uh, I discovered that that symbol that I had drawn on those space shuttles was actually the symbol for the star Sirius, which was the ultimate star of every secret society I'd been researching and was the ultimate star for um, uh, the Templars. And, you know, it just it, it was and, and it was connected to these merfolk or fish people from Atlantis, right? which was really one of the core of my study. Um, and I'm blown away because I'm sitting there looking at the book. Robert Kate Temple wrote a book called The Serious Mystery, which is a, a very uh, authentic, very well-researched book on the, the Dogon tribe of Mali, Africa, who got their mystery school religion and their living civilizations from fish people from Sirius. And they gave them a symbol that would represent Sirius. And it was the very symbol that I put on these space shuttles. Well, later in, in life, lo and behold, if we don't come up with exopolitics, and as exopolitics then defines these two races, they have the Syrians and the Alpha Draconians, which of course are the winged serpents, which are identical, you know, the exact thing I drew on the opposite side of the page. So here I got the Syrians working with NASA, with the Earthlings on planet Earth, which connects to the, the Freemasons and the creation of NASA and the Nazis and how all that correlates. And then you have the winged serpent out there, the Alpha Draconans. Now, in between the Alpha Draconans and the Syrians, which if you look at the Pope, he's, of course, the fish man, the, uh, the Syrian, and the queen, the dragon, the Alpha Draconans. So we have these symbols combating one another here in our, our reality here on planet Earth, you know, constantly these same symbols. And even what the exopoliticians say that uh, these two races are doing, whereas the Alpha Draconans run military keep scarcity, use people, and, and, and control the grays. And the, uh, the Syrians are known for their high technological and geneticisms and all of the, uh, the sciences. And, and of course, uh, they, the Vatican, you know, the other super telescope and all of their high-tech uh, underground uh, laboratories and everything going on there. Uh, you know, the, all of the high space that they're looking into, they involved with looking into the anti-universe with CERN and things of this nature. 
so, the, you know, everything actually fits the correspondences. Then you go to Manly P. Hall's library at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, and you come upon Manly P. Hall's doors. Now, these must Ooh, have been here, let me up. just interrupt. Manly P. Hall, can you, who was he? Okay, Manly P. Hall is the lead esoteric researcher of Freemasonry in uh, current times. He's still uh, he, alive and still writing? No, he recently died. And an interesting story I haven't shared. I spoke with Jay Widener, and he said that Manly P. Hall was actually on his way to meet him the day he died. Now, Manly had collected a, a massive library in, in, Phil, in Los Angeles under the Philosophical Research Society, and he had a, a secret benefactor that would allow him to purchase any books anywhere. And they have the largest satanic library. Well, next to uh, uh, Penn of Penn and Teller, he has the largest satanic library. But uh, Manly has very large, uh, all kinds of, you know, different esotericisms. You know, we got Madame Belatsky, we've got uh, the works of Nicholas Rorick and all kinds of stuff in there. So he, he became an honorary 33rd degree Freemason because he knew more about the craft, as it's called, than the Masons themselves. And so he never actually raised, rose through the ranks of Freemasonry, but was given an honorary title because of his knowledge. And he's written amazing books like uh, The Secret Destiny of America, which chapter two has a <laughs> titled Akhenaten, The Man Born 2,000 Years Too Soon. Um, but he comes at the, the idea of this philosophical uh, enlightened brotherhood, the secret college or the invisible college, the order of the quest, as he calls them, that are the ones that have nudged society into having a, a blooming civilization and, and are the people behind all of the manufacturers of reality, really, you know, up to Shakespeare and to all of the politics. And uh, so mainly is, is that. And you walk into his library doors and the, one door is, is a fish man who's supposed to be Confucius, who's holding a phallic staff and is being worshipped by all these uh, Asian-looking men at the floor. And then on the other door is what's supposed to be Plato, and he's a reptilian, and he has slit eyes. I mean, reptilian eyes. And uh, this is, of course, the backdrop on freemantv.com. This is what you'll see when you look at my website, is Manly P. Hall's doors. And he's holding an uh, acorn, which is the or a pine cone, excuse me, which is the symbol of the pineal gland and the connection, the psychic connections of the universe. So you've got the geneticism and then the psychic connection or the spiritual connection. And also you have the ideas of Confucius and Plato and these philosophies in the crafting of civilization. They're always in the black and white con concepts and putting these things. And then you also have the idea of the emotions and the reptilian brain or your, uh, your logic and reason. So all of this came out in this one little picture I drew, but it, it went from there, right? It got deeper. It was crazier because here I was still looking at what seemed to be a spiral galaxy in the center of this thing. But lo and behold, of STS, uh, I think Space Shuttle Mission 75, I think it was, uh, was off filming what was called the Tether Experiment. And this was the Columbia Space Shuttle out there that... Uh, had let out a long tether out of the space shuttle, which actually was charging from energy out of nowhere, right? So it was a free energy device that they were testing in space. And, it, and oh, the, so let me interrupt. That's with it because I've seen that um, uh, that tether footage, 
and and I've never heard that before that they were testing some free energy device. Yeah, yeah, they were they were sucking energy out of space just on this what looked like you know once it well it it actually charged overcharged and broke away from the space shuttle and started to float off into space, looking like a giant fluorescent light tube floating off right and illuminating everything around it. And all of a sudden, we're seeing just multitude of craft that are looking like little amoeba or something flishing by. You can see a spiral inside of their their core. They look almost translucent, and there's a little notch on the side of the, the spaceship or the craft or yeah, now, whatever. Yeah, so so like. I've actually looked at this quite closely, and and I followed um, oh David Sarita, right. who, who did a. a kind of I have a video presentation that he did on this. I actually have it on DVD. Um, yeah, I don't reach the same conclusions that that David Sarita does. Um, now I'll also add that David Sarita has recently come out and 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 uh, come forward with his abduction experiences. Really? So yeah, so there's one more in the mix. Yeah, but what I, I, I recognize that that footage is extremely strange and something is going on. It looks to me like... Um, just because all the little orbs, all the little the little amoeba-like things, are all consistent, right? They're, so they're never turned. Right. They're they they seem almost like two-dimensional little um, flat things, right? As opposed to a three-dimensional sphere. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. Yeah, and and um, so I I understand that the that the footage was being shot with a, some sort of infrared camera. So we're seeing things in the infrared. We're not seeing just a normal. Uh, camera shot so so we're seeing things that would be beyond our, our mere vision right. and to me it's it, the, my sense is that these little floating particulates and that that tether was like 11 kilometers long if i'm not yeah. mistaken yeah it was huge yeah and then and the tether is actually um um how to say it it's not focusing correctly it seems like it's uh it's it's exposed improperly so it looks like a giant fluorescent tube uh, and i think that's just the 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 infrared properties of the camera rather than the the tether itself um but yeah so my sense is that these little things something's going on because these things just sort of emerge out of the ethers right well, let, they let don't come in from the outside this. it's not like they come in from a, some other place do you know what i'm saying yeah yeah well yeah, i want to i want to add a story to this now uh we just finished a sacred spiral in a big yellow school bus around the united states right and that's you and your girlfriend drove around. Uh, and and our friend Monty, yeah. And and what's the name of the bus? Doesn't it have a Miss something? It's got a feminine. Yeah, Miss Emily. Miss Emily, it's okay. The, it's the Mystery School Mobile Media. <laughs> Mystery School Mobile Media Lab Experiment, or the MSMMLE. That, that had Scooby Snacks in the back, did you? Oh, yeah, for sure. We, <laughs> well, we have our poodle, too. So she came along as well. And, and, you know, the friendship agenda is something I definitely want to talk about. What we accomplished on the, in that school bus, I definitely want to talk with you about. Uh, but at one point, we ended up at the East Seti Ranch in James Gilliland. And while we were out there that night doing the sky watch with the night vision goggles, uh, one of his companions asked me if I wanted to see through the infrared and or uh, see the you know see the infrared and maybe he could call an orb and i was like hmm, all right so i put on the night vision goggles and he clicked on the infrared lamp which only i could see right uh, everybody else couldn't see it because i had the goggles anyway uh and i i'm sitting there and i'm kind of expecting a a particles in the lamp beam itself and i and i did see you know because there was mist in the air and everything else were right under the mountain and everything and um 
And this was, of course, Mount Rainier. Where, oh, it's, and, it's, not, it's, it's Mount, um, Mount Adams. Adams, which is, yeah, okay. Uh, I, so I, anyway. I, I spent a lot of time in the North Cascades, so I'm kind of familiar with the range there. But yes, I think, I'm pretty sure it's Mount Adams. Right, you're right. Uh, named after a Freemason, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah keep going. <laughs> Sorry, I had, to, I had to put that but in. So I'm sitting there looking at this infrared beam, and I'm expecting there to be part particles in the beam and kind of seeing, you know, I thought maybe that's where the orb would appear or something. And I did see, like, what seemed even looked similar to the things that we saw in the tether experiment floating through the, the lamp. Uh, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, from far left screen, you know, because I'm looking through the goggles, all of a sudden, this grid green orb, you know, green probably because of the goggles, but came flying by, went over the beam of, of infrared light and, you know, like jumped it and then scooted off off into nowhere. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. I'm blown away. And I turn around to, you know, say, did you see that? And of course, no one else saw it. I'm the only one wearing the $2,000 goggles. So I'm like, oh, man, you know, I got to eat this one alone, too. You know what I mean? Uh here I just saw the most amazing thing, and and, and no one else did. <laughs> yes. So once again, James Gilliland, an abductee, uh, very vocal about it. Uh, yeah. So oh, and I also know I have a friend. Her name is Kim Carlsberg, and she lives in Sedona, and she has been doing tours, like night watching tours, sky tours, and she has an arsenal, you know, like a suitcase full of uh, of those two thousand uh, dollar nightwatch goggles you know the military grade nightwatch goggles and um i have never actually used them you know under the night sky but everyone i've talked to has been blown away by oh we saw tons of stuff you know the orb was a totally different experience but we saw tons of stuff watching what what couldn't have been satellites watching things make left turns turns and and coming at one another floating together we saw flashers we saw power-ups you know every night you would just hear oh oh you know because you can't see all that with your naked eye as well but with uh they had a camera on it all and you could watch it from the computer screen and things and it was you know we saw a lot of things that i couldn't explain <laughs> yeah they definitely yeah. weren't satellites that much i knew because of their trajectories and the way they change patterns and then of course they would beam uh, lasers at them and they would then power up and they would get really bright and then you know take off again and it, really crazy stuff yeah you know this is so so here i'll tell a quick story so there's a friend of mine she's actually in lawrence kansas right now her name is erica and uh last summer in June, sort of been this summer, I guess the summer of 2012, um, this last summer, we were uh, camping near my house here. I live right near Grand Teton National Park, lying out under the beautiful sky. We were way up high, the Milky Way, the sky was incredible. Um, it was late at night because the sun goes down so late here. We were pretty far north. And uh, so we're like looking at the satellites. Things are obviously satellites, right? You can see this little these little dots just kind of trucking their way across the sky. And then they'll, you know, they just nice consistent speed. They don't change direction or anything. And then we're suddenly drawn to one of these dots. And for the most part, it didn't look any different. It was maybe a little bit brighter than the other dots we were looking at. And um, I, uh, you know, so we were, we were talking about that one. Now I have to jump ahead a little bit here, jump back, I guess. I worked in advertising for a long time in New York City. And one of the things I worked on 
was the My Little Pony campaign. I, I'm a little worried that uh, I may not get into heaven. You know, they'll they'll, <laughs> yeah. they'll use that against me uh, when I when it comes time to go through the pearly gates. You know, um, so anyway, like as a sort of a cynical little cloying thing that I will do sometime is make little My Little Pony references. So I'm laying there under the beautiful sky. We're looking at this one lone dot as it's moving across the sky, and I say out loud, in like a insipid childish voice, I say. I love you, my little UFO. And as soon as I said this, that thing flashed in a way that was, that I've never seen anything in the night sky do. Right. And both of us were like, whoa. And then, um, you know, so we were playing with it in a way. We, it was like, it never changed its course. It never did anything. But every time we said something like, um, hello, Mr. UFO, are you up there? It would flash at us. Um. I talked to Kim Carlsberg. Now, Kim Carlsberg is also a UFO abductee. I might have mentioned that before. So she's the one in Sedona with the night vision goggles. I get back from this trip. I'm a little bit like, you know, it was actually really playful. It wasn't like I was freaked out or scared, but I was definitely intrigued. And I called her up and I say, hey, you know, here's my experience. I tell the story I just told you. And and I said, does this, does this ever, do you have any uh, experience with this? And she, I could hear her on the phone. Like she literally, you know, she kind of said, oh, this happens all the time. So I, I don't know if this happened 20 years ago, but it certainly is a story I've heard over and over again recently. Yeah, uh, I've heard such things. And, you know, I, I do believe that and know that our our brains transmit and receive, you know, there's just no doubts about this. So um, any race with sufficient technology could easily catch upon those things or if they had, you know, the abilities like uh you know these new new ideas coming out now like alphas and stuff yeah yeah so i don't know i mean yeah so anyway it was it was a pretty cool experience at my end and then i've just heard that experience uh, even before that i've been hearing the same experience but um it seems to be on the increase that experience because i'm just hearing it all the time now hmm. hey um so well, uh, i did want to get back okay, to the, yeah, the going, david serrata part yeah yeah keep going uh just to, to conclude the the image that i had drawn when i was 10 because it didn't finalize with just the Alpha Draconians and the Syrians. There was still this uh, you know, strange galaxy in the middle of the thing. Well, so I'm watching David Serrata with uh, NASA's UFOs. And lo and behold, if I don't see exactly what's in the middle of my picture. I mean, I took it and I superimposed the, the quote-unquote craft that you see in the the tether experiment over the image that I had drawn on my picture, and they're identical. The notch, the shape, everything down to the spiral is in my picture. And I'm I'm blown away because now we're talking hyperdimensional physics. Because <laughs> that's what David Serrato um, de derived from, or, you know, used as his example for hyperdimensional physics. And, of course, he also connected this to the Dropa Stone, which had the little notch in it as well, and a spiral going around it, which told of a race from Sirius that came to planet Earth that oh, were water beings. Yeah, I don't know what the Dropa Stone is. Dropa Stone was a stone found in China that had a groove. It was a big black, like, onyx stone, and I guess it was found in Dropa. Uh, and then it has a spiral carved into it. And inside of the spiral is uh, uh, characters. You know, I forget what language. And uh, David Serrata tells that this story uh, then outlines the arrival of these, these water beings from Sirius. And then we start getting to the connection of the Snomo uh, with the, uh, with the, mon the 
the Mali African tribe, uh, the Dogon. So then the Dogon, uh, actually in that same, and you can watch this in my video on Colombia. I have all of the tether footage plus this other footage in there uh, where you can see these same craft uh, come down to the atmosphere of Earth and form a circle with one flashing in the middle. And they're translucent. You can see right through them. And they, they form a circle over Earth and they just start to float over the horizon uh, out of sight. Now, and and this, this is part of, this is like NASA footage from one of yeah, the space yeah. missions? Okay. Yeah, same same one. And the thing of it was is that they're over Mali, Africa. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So so they're over the, where the Dogon tribe lived. And now yeah, you... Um, now they still live. I met a Dogon priest along our way right. in the school bus, actually. Far out. So, so in also um, in your many list, your list of many accomplishments, one of them is that you have studied the goddess Columbia. Yeah, I I'm, I I herald myself as the only expert on the goddess Columbia. Uh, at least that was the case when I started. I, I I still haven't found anyone who discusses her or knows why we call our goddess Columbia. Uh, I saw Mark Dice kind of steal my information and use it on the Discovery Channel, but other than that, I haven't seen anyone else talk about her. And and so fill me in on the, the goddess Columbia. I'm just thinking of the ISIS. Well, actually, you know what I'm thinking of is the the woman standing in the ISIS pose on the um, uh, on, the, on the beginning of any Columbia movie. Right, right. Who I I believe uh, they based that off of. Um, oh, I lost her name. I'll come back to that. Uh, Columbia is the literary title of America. Now. Right there, you begin with American history and you wonder, well, where does the name America come from? Now, many believe that it was based after Amerigo Vespucci, but this has been wholeheartedly disputed by uh, and disproved by a couple of Masons who, who crafted the Web of Hiram and have written books. It's Knight and Lomas. They wrote the Book of Hiram, which Hiram is the, the mysterious mason who strangely seems to be extraterrestrial as well, that everybody pretends to be in the rituals. Uh, maybe I should start there with a little bit of extraterrestrial connection to Freemasonry, because the goddess Columbia and the name America come to us through Freemasonry. And you know, all of our founding fathers were Freemasons and half of our presidents have all been Freemason and if not you know, related to, and then the heads of all your corporations are Freemasons and they really are the ones that craft our civilization. So it's best to learn most about them that you can. I, I initially came into contact with the Freemasons in college. Now, not them themselves, but I had a friend that was a crazy magician who studied Aleister Crowley and all kinds of Kabbalistic magic, which I had never heard of. This was 1993, and we didn't even know what the, the definition of esoteric was. You know, here we are, all, all college students, but this guy was a genius. He actually hacked into NASA and was denied a computer until he turned 21. Um, <laughs> and he... Uh, he had this massive library. He was the first one to be be foolish or brave enough to jump into a vehicle with me and start traveling across the United States. So me and this crazy cat I call Alistair Morrison uh, just cruised around the United States in a school bus without any cares and any knowledge of where we were going or what we were going to do. 
And that was the basis of me understanding synchronicity and how everything works. Uh, that whole story is crazy. I don't want to jump there yet, but uh, he introduced me to these concepts of Freemasonry and such. And uh, lo and behold, I come home and I find out, well, once he showed me the Freemasonic symbol for the compass square and G, I said, I, I recognize this symbol. And we put two and two together and realized that my dad was a Mason. So here I've lived my entire existence, never even knowing that my dad was a Mason. But it turned out he basically had left the brotherhood. My father was uh, raised as a worshipful master in Kaiserslautern and uh, was brought up by what they, my family referred to as the grand potentate of Freemasonry. And then he went on to be on Killer One Submarine with Jimmy Carter. And of course, the only or one of the main presidents to bring out UFOs and be, a, you know, a, an experiencer himself. My father was on the first killer submarine with him. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, it's interesting because Jimmy Carter, uh, during his election, he said, you know, when I'm if I get elected president, um, I'll, you know, open up the UFO files. And as soon as he became president, um, whoosh, like that never came up again. So. Uh, Maybe Freemason Nicholas Cage will bring it out for us in their Disney productions of National Treasure, right? Well, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> free, who, who has a pyramid in New oh, Orleans knew, already built, ready? The heart. Yeah, he has a pyramid already built in New Orleans in a New Orleans graveyard uh, for his um, entombment. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Well, uh, okay, the esoteric roots of or the extraterrestrial roots of Freemasonry. Um, because here I, I, I found out after that my father was also in Project Blue Book. So now I found out my dad's involved in all this stuff that I had been studying all my life, you know, up until the point where I got to college and learned about Freemasonry, but all the extraterrestrial stuff and everything that I had come across and uh, kind of got validated by my dad because I'm like, you know, he helped me. He was, well, I was in Project Blue Book. I, it was my job to trace flying saucers as they came in over our atmosphere. And I'm like, what? You know, so, you know, as a, as a kid or, you know, just, I guess, 18, 19, somewhere around there, uh, I'm, I'm like, so, so flying saucers are real. And he's like, well, yeah, they're real. He says, uh, uh, you know, I'm stationed on a South sea Island with four radar dishes, which I later confirmed this was real. And, uh, and would track the flying saucers as they came in. And, you know, it was my job to report the flying saucers. And I'm like, wow. So dad was really closed mouth. He, he never, I, you know, like I say, I never knew he was a Freemason until I discovered it. And then he started to tell me a thing or two. Uh, strange little uh, side note, sad but true. Uh, I went to interview my father for my TV show, The Freeman Perspective, when it began. So 2005. I got this TV show and went all through synchronicity. And that was extraterrestrial contact too. Maybe we could talk about that one too. I don't know. There's so many synchronistic extraterrestrial contacts. It's contact weird. I know. Yeah. It's so weird. Because I was pretending to be a Palladian at a George Green convention or talk at a, at a mall in Texas. And, and George Humphrey paid to put me on television. <laughs> and that's how that all happened. You know, it was all ET. I was, it was crazy stuff because, you know, sometimes I think I am an alien, right? This knowledge I have, the stuff I talk about to me is so obvious and just so right in your face. I feel like an alien. So I might as well talk like one. You know, when I visit planet Earth, I, I notice Earthlings do this, you know, because <laughs> it's totally not in my nature to be what I see. Uh, but, you know, 
I wondered about the genetic memory of it all because here was my dad all involved and here was me studying it all, you know? So it, it was really curious to me. Well, I went to interview my dad and uh, the day that I was supposed to show up, I, my flight got delayed for some reason. I don't remember now. And uh, he did not wake up that day. He died that day. Which oh, God, I'm so, so sorry. Yeah, it was a shock, you know? No one expected him to die, right? And the thing of it was, he knew I was coming to interview him that day. And, and, and now, okay, now, was he, like, open and, and receptive to doing the interview? Well, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I kept trying to convince him of, you know, just getting it on the record before he dies, which, you know, we thought would be, you know, a couple decades later. He was only in his 60s. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, he knew, he knew that's what I wanted to do. I was still okay. trying, to, trying to convince him, you know, to go forward and, but I had the flight scheduled and I did end up flying out, but had I actually made the original flight, I would have shown up to my dad dead, you know, and this would have been, you know, just too much like for trying to, to accept this scenario and wondering, because, you know, I do a lot of study into trauma-based mind control, which was one of the most horrific studies I've ever done. And people wonder why I don't touch upon the subject all that much anymore. It's because it's horrific. Yeah. And uh, my dad, I was obviously a victim of abuse and uh, he had also been raised through the mind control of the military and the mind control of the Freemasons throughout all this uh, time. And, uh, you know, it's very plausible that he was programmed uh, to not be able to reveal any of this information, or it was just a really uh, odd coincidence. I am very, very cautious to use the term coincidence anymore. Yeah. 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 I've had way too many crazy synchronicities in my life where I needed to get somewhere and I'm at a stranger's house, you know, because I travel, I just wander and a phone rings and it's somebody that needs to go where I'm going and needs someone to go with them, you know? And I'm like, how could that happen? That's just no way possible. You know, I need to, I'm in North Carolina. I need to get to this festival in Florida to meet my friends so that I can make it to the rainbow gathering. And the phone rings in a stranger's house and they're like, Hey, I need somebody to go with me to this festival in Florida. Do they have gas money? And you know, and boom. And I'm like, Whoa, how does this happen? And I had so many experiences like that where the universe is totally working in my favor. And it, it, it set the guide for my life, my lifestyle. That's all I've done since then. You know, at that moment in 93 with my friend, we just jumped in the school bus I had a bunch of juggling sticks that I had made and a little black and white spotted dog that jumped in the in the VW bus, not a school bus. And we just traveled around the U.S. while I sold juggling sticks. And, you know, we'd return with with endless tales. I'd been I was one of the original Occupy movements. I spent nine days in front of Bill Clinton's White House with a bunch of hippie friends feeding them from a school bus. And uh, we, we occupied or the White House back in '93, mystical things happened. Oh, and what was actually, the reason you were you were um, protesting? Well, I had met up with a, a group of people known as the Rainbow Family of Living Light. Very familiar with them. I live out west. They had their their rainbow event um, in Wyoming a few years ago. I was there. Yes, and uh, the Wyoming before that, we almost burnt to the ground. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was the Forest Service was uh, you know basically you know 
said those damn hippies with some venom in their voice. Oh, I sat there and watched as the, the big uh, C-130, uh, big drop plane came down and, and totally just missed the fire. <laughs> I was up on a mountain or a hillside and I, I could see over the wings even, I, you know, the plane would come in that low and it just, they, I mean, they missed the fire entirely. They, they hit the rainbow gathering. But might they, have been they might have been, uh, yeah, that, that coincidence, you know, may not fit that one either. So yeah, no, someone had dragged a, a burning mattress through the, the woods to start this fire that was shown. And yeah, most most of the hippies believe that it was the government trying to burn them out. Uh, and yeah. the Rainbow Gathering isn't they're not like a political organization. They're just like kind of, you know, community grooviness, aren't they? Well, in, in a way, what happened was um, they they and this is why we were protesting in D.C. They, they had come together to stand for uh, the constitutional right of national forest. So these forests had been left for the people. And what was going on back in the 70, I think it started in 1974, the Rainbow Gatherings, they they were starting to, to take over national forests and making them uh, federal parks. And so then the people were losing more and more and more land to these federal parks and everything going under federal control. So the Rainbow started gathering together in the national forest every 4th of July to show their sovereignty within the national forest. What has occurred since then in, in 93 when I began uh, is they started a, a process of uh, having to fill out a permit in order to visit the national forest in any large groups. And so the protest at 93 in front of Bill Clinton's house was to oppose these permits. Now, I've been going for now, what, 20 years or something like that. Every 4th of July, I quit my job and go out and live in the woods. And uh, they they have been issuing these permits, and certain people have been filing for them, which people think are agent provocateurs. One is 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 a self admitted Freemason, you know. He happens to be the one at the heart of signing the permit, and um, uh, the rest of us get tickets. Now, you know, they give tickets out to everyone and and then you have to go to this faux courthouse that they've put into some uh, like a fire department, a fire station or something. They've set up a faux court in there and they bring a couple hundred hippies out of the woods for not having their permits. And they make them all sit out there with no food, water or bathrooms in front of this firehouse and waiting to be processed one at a time when they're charged fifty dollars a head. And then if they they don't have the money, they're held into jail until somewhere, you know, a faux jail, right? Like a, a detention cage that they've set up until someone can come up with the money to release them. And everybody has to go through this with no food or water all day. They just sit out there until they're called in. And it's, it's absolute insanity. I watched the same thing occur when... Um, I was at the WTO IMF protest after they had attacked everybody in, in Seattle. And I saw that there was not a massive upheaval of, of people in America going, oh, my God, here's our, our 20th century Kent State, where they opened fire on unarmed civilians in the streets of Seattle with massive riot squads, you know, pepper spraying and CS gas and concussion grenades chasing people into neighborhoods. Now, this was the first time that the Internet had provided me independent media 
it was indie media it was actually and you could actually watch everything that was going on so you could see the bs they were giving you on the news and you can literally watch what was actually happening with live reports with people on their cell phones um actually at the next wto was my very first radio broadcast as i uh, broadcast over the uh, a cell phone at the wto and uh and dc so after the fiasco in seattle i said ah you know this was 1996 i said you know do this to me of course right like the the standard cry of the martyr and i i, I rushed off with my friend to washington dc for the protest of imf the Inter international monetary fund and the world trade organization and 500,000 people had gathered together there in the middle of the streets. They had shut off 50 blocks of Washington, D.C. No one could get anywhere. All of the Denzians were either pissed or partying. <laughs> they, once the streets were all theirs, everybody started putting their speakers out their windows. And, and the streets just kind of erupted into this celebration of life. And I, I don't think anybody even knew what they were protesting anymore. It was just 500,000 people having a good time in the middle of D.C., <laughs> like we had an old block party going on, but all of the people that had actually filed the permits to protest, and I knew a bunch of these, I'd been there uh, from the beginning, uh, were the first to be arrested. And they were the ones that got just surrounded by riot squads and taken away, and we didn't hear from them for a while. Uh, I actually never ran into them again, but I, I heard stories later. But then as I'm coming back and we were doing a pre-protest, as it were, and we were all just kind of walking back from this, and we were heading back into downtown. Two lines of riot squads just blocked off a whole block and, and trapped 600 people in the middle. I was fortunate enough to be ahead of the line when they just decided that they were going to trap these 600. They trapped them and had them held there for 14 hours. They, well, six hours here in, in, the, in the street where they then removed any world bank members were uh, brought out of the group any press that were let or were taken out of the group and then any hippie that was smart enough to pretend that he was press but then you know little boys little old ladies japanese tourists anyone that happened to be on that street at that moment doing nothing was then hauled away in school buses or in city buses no school buses when they ran out of school buses then they started using city buses and they hauled these 16, 600 people to this dank hangar where the buses are stored, all smelling with gas and everything. And they're all zip tied, right? The 10 year old boys, the little old ladies. I had pictures of all this, but they vanished. I don't know. I don't know, but I don't have them anymore. But they had all these old boys and ladies and everybody zip tied. And of course, I'm on indie radio, you know, screaming at people through the broadcast on indie media. And uh, they then charged these people one at a time. It took 14 hours, like I say, and they were processed for parading without a permit. <laughs> they were charged 50 bucks a head and then given, uh, you know, so the cops made a quick 30 grand that night off of those guys. Jeez. Okay. You know, so you're not surprising me with any of these stories. Um, so here, like one thing I want to do want to hear you talk about is the event that took place in Daytona beach with your friend. All right, because that, that flashes us right back to 93. And I'm sorry, we tangent to 96. Oh, no, this, but, conversations yeah. do this. Yeah, yeah. They, they tangent all over the place. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, 1993, I'm, I'm completing college. I just graduated interdisciplinary studies with these crazy lunatic geniuses. <laughs> and uh, 
we decide to go to Daytona Beach as a celebration. It's spring break. It's uh, Daytona Beach. Let's go and party hardy. And, and you were living in Florida at the time. Right. I grew up in Florida. You know, I was one of the first people into Epcot. Uh, my mom shook Walt Disney's hand. I've been around there, you know, all my life. Yeah. Um, so uh, we we get this. We just we drive out to spring break in the evening. It's about nine o'clock and we're. It's about an hour and a half drive or so, and we get out there, and we decide that uh, before we go hit the bars, we'd cruise the beach for a minute and just kind of wander around. Now, it's already dark, but we just decided to walk down there and, and check it out. So the beach is actually empty. There's no one on the beach. Or, uh, everybody's a block and a half away over on the strip and going to the bars. and I mean, thousands of people. I have seen spring break un unhitched on TV. I know it was just like that. Right. And, but that's all going on a block away. Whereas we're all alone out on the beach, sitting on a lifeguard stand. And I honestly have no recollection of this thing arriving and and not really any recollection of it leaving but we're looking out over the water and all of a sudden as if a giant window had opened in space there's a big rectangle floating out over the ocean and it's subdivided into four even squares and the it's red and it looks like translucent like light like you could put your hand right through it but the borders of the rectangle are solid so almost like an open window that has red light coming through it and four things and oh here, but, how big would you say this is oh massive um i i wish i could gauge i did do an artwork which i'll send to you of what it looked like from my perspective uh i wish i could gauge but we'll just leave it at massive it was it was huge uh great okay fair enough keep going and and then the thing of it was, is that that lasted, you know, just a few minutes and I don't remember it leaving at all, but I remember following my finger with my eyes. And, you know, strangely enough, uh, that's the recollection I have is following it, its movement with my hand, but not its actual moving itself. So we jumped down off that lifeguard stand and we're like, oh my God, that was, you know, that, wow, whoa, you know, we're running and we decided to you know go tell anyone and everyone that would possibly listen to us of what we just saw and so we get over to the, the daytona beach strip and it's empty there are no people there is just empty streets no you know and we're standing there looking at one another dumbfounded like you know thinking twilight zone thoughts and wondering if everyone had been abducted and we were the last people left on planet earth and we're just kind of wandering and, and wondering. And we just go down the street, decide to head towards the bar we were going to in the first place. And we run into a group of kids, thank God. And we're like, oh, okay, there's still humans around. And we asked the time and it was 3.30. So we had lost like five hours of time that, that you know, we, we had no idea. So we we you know got back in the car and headed home and the strange thing was that i i eventually well it was 96 i guess i landed in lawrence kansas and uh the next year i'm wandering the streets of lawrence and and here comes my friend that was with me in that experience just out of the blue no, no. just out of the blue it turns out his girlfriend is going to ku he was actually, when we were in college together, he was studying animation and he went on to Hollywood to start doing computer generated graphics. So um, 
he he was just in Lawrence just visiting and boom, we ran into each other and I'm like, oh my God, you know, come on over to the house. And sure enough, he opened the whole discussion of the UFO. So I didn't have to bring it up. Now, all my friends have heard the damn story, you know, and, uh, uh, but here he was opening the story without me bringing it up at all. They got all the confirmation they needed. And then he reminded me that on our way home, when we got to my neighborhood, we could not recognize anything. And so I didn't know what corners to turn or where to go, even though I'd driven that, you know, a billion times. And that uh, was the home you grew up in? Yeah, yeah. And we must have made it home on like autopilot because I don't even know now how we got home. But I did when he mentioned that I remembered looking at street signs and not knowing what they meant. So uh, I had forgotten about that till he brought it up. Now, now here's just scary. Um, I I know a little bit about uh, you know what it's like to be that age and and uh, from my own direct experience. Were you doing any drugs at the time? Were you tried to drop acid or anything? Uh, we probably were a little high. Okay, well that's different yeah. than sort of you know like a you know mind numbing trip, I guess. Yeah, no, 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 no. We were completely sentient. Yeah, and just uh, uh. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Um. Now, the thing of it was, is after that moment, I started projecting world events. So it became this. After this the whole moment, of, after the time of the, the missing time in Florida. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was as if I was kind of shown a, a future scenario or at least, uh, you know, road signs along the path. Mm -hmm. Because here I was and, okay, so... I start to to awaken to my my worldview. All right, and we never did to really discuss how Hiram was extraterrestrial, but you can go on FreemanTV.com and and find out for yourself that Freemasonry has its extraterrestrial roots in in their first master Mason Hiram Abiff, who was brought to planet Earth according to uh, Manly P. Hall and the research into uh, Freemasonry was brought to Earth by uh, King Hiram of Tyre and was brought to build the temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. And that's a, you know, one crazy extraterrestrial tale all on its own. And when you get to finding out that the inner mysteries of Freemasonry have this strange man, Hiram Abiff, showing up to build the temple because nobody on planet Earth knew how to house this weapon of mass destruction that had been given to the Hebrews, you know, they, the story gets a little even more interesting. So... That's the extraterrestrial roots of Freemasonry. I started to get deeper and deeper into understanding these things and started to see the Freemasonic connections and corporate logos and how this all fit within their rituals and everything started to click together and I started to see a bigger worldview and I started to make projections. And what had actually happened, if I can just go through this quickly because I cover this often, is that I saw the downfall. Well, first, it was the, the Y2K ritual. This blew my mind, right? Because I understood it. I understood the symbolism that was being projected out into the world with the burning of the river Styx or the Thames River at the speed of the sun. Uh, the idea of capping the Great Pyramid with gold and then making the light shine uh, as if the sun was rising in the west. All of this symbolism. And then the capping of the Pyramid of the Gold, that was supposedly uh, Freemasons were requesting to cap the Pyramid with gold and the... And the uh... Uh, Egyptian government uh, shot him down? 
Yeah, for seven years now, I've had a challenge out there for anyone who might have the December 18th, 1999, December 18th, USA Today, because that was the, the newspapers whose headline read, Muslims stop the Freemasons from capping the Great Pyramid with gold. And that isn't archived on the internet or anything like it that? It is not. USA Today doesn't do archives, and their print version is different than what's online. Uh, so... Uh, the thing is, you can find the article, the AP article on the capping of the Great Pyramid with gold, but you will not find the references to Freemasonry and Muslims as it was in the headlines on December 18th. And all of their uh, copies online are sold out. I've tried to get a copy for the last decade, you know. <laughs> I wish I had it. Because when I made my first film, that was one of the things I wanted to show you, the corporate logos and Illuminati meanings. And I wanted to show you that headline desperately. And I went to every college that I could find and, and you know, once again, traveling. And no one, no one databases the USA Today. It's not held in any any libraries anywhere. Okay, okay. Um, um, so anyway, where were we? Could we keep... Uh... Uh, so, uh, you know, the Y2K ritual just kind of blew my doors. And at that moment, because I was I was fully knowledgeable about the ideas of the Y2K meltdown and I was dealing, I was actually working at Kansas University at the time and I was dealing with students that I was trying to introduce to these new concepts and, you know, there are no, no bigger closed minds than on a college campus. So uh, they, would, they would eat up the information and I was kind of just an information feeder to these students a lot of times. Um, because I was feeding them lunch <laughs> and, and I would, I would drop documents and stuff on them. And the Y2K was one where everyone thought I would be in a bunker just because I brought this, the, the scenario up, you know, but the real moment, the, the idea of the ritual that I saw then unhinged me at that moment and said, nothing is real. None of the, the politics, nothing in civilization is real. The people that are in charge are mystical. They're dark occultists sorcerers if you will and and you can't base anything on what you think is reality anymore so i quit the world i had, I had been a, a rainbow traveler from 1993 on and i had realized that there was this what i call the human because all my life i had wondered where are the humans on planet earth i seem to be all alone here as i say many of us feel like aliens amongst the earthlings and when I ran into the Rainbow Tribe, I was like, oh, here you are. Okay, all right. I'm not alone on planet Earth. Here are the other humans. And so I was compelled every year to return to Rainbow just to get that, that taste of humanity again. And, you know, there, there's only two rules at Rainbow, and that is no money and no alcohol. And everything else is, is open. And the thing of it is, is everybody's beautiful, loving, caring, nurturing beings. They just take care of one another. And that's what they love to do. Everybody loves to cook for one another. Everybody loves to take care of another. They all love doing all these things. And, and no one's getting paid. No one's doing it for money. They all just love to cook, share, do dishes, do whatever, play music, put on shows. They build life-size pirate ships out of, uh, you know, Deadwood. In the forest, nothing living ever gets taken down, and the the ground is all replanted with with food and and natural growth. Everything's put back as it was and better. Uh, so all of the rainbow always leave, you know, a a replenished land. Uh, so 
when I when the Y2K struck and my mental break came from the real world to the rainbow world, I said, I'm going rainbow full time. And I have not had a job since 1999. I quit. <laughs> I said, no more. Now, I, I'm not going to sign a registration for my, uh, you know, administration or anything. I'm just I'm out. And I began wandering again. Uh, because what I would do is I'd wander and I'd land, you know, I would, I would go off and, and then winter would come along and I'd have to go find a home again. And I'd home it for a while. And then, you know, summer would come along, I gotta go. And, um, but I, I decided to branch off completely and I don't even know what I did at that point. <laughs> to be honest with you, and it, that eventually led me down to Austin, Texas, where I was at that George Green lecture pretending to be a Palladian or a Plajaran, whatever you want to call it, because he had just met Billy Meyer and the Palladians there and was producing their books. Now, George Green, he was he was. Uh, was it Jimmy Carter again? Yeah, Jimmy uh, Carter, I think he was the uh, treasurer's public relations manager. He was his financial advisor yeah. and uh, he could make a billion dollars out of nothing, you know, and, and he's this huge doomsdayer now. Right. Uh, and he lives in Idaho just uh, so. Oh, yeah. Well, he he was producing the books for the uh, the Palladians called Handbook for a New Paradigm and basically giving them away for free, you know, handing them out to everybody. And it was that book that had open the door well you know i didn't like the book honestly it didn't register with me the words and, and was this a channeled book from a billy meyer himself no this was from the palladians themselves and and then published by george green and where did, well who's the conduit for the for the getting the information uh, the palladians like he showed us pictures of them and that's how I started to pretend to be one because in their pictures, they all kind of look like me with long, wild hair. And I was the only one in the group that really looked like what the images of the Palladians look like. Uh -huh. And, you know, of course, these Palladians supposedly let Billy Meyer take all the pictures of the flying saucers and shoot, you know, the ray guns supposedly, through the tree and yeah, stuff. I've, I've yeah. got some very strong opinions on Billy Meyer. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. So. But so, you know, here I am at this George Green lecture. He's showing us all the Billy Meyer pics and he's talking about all this and how he, you know, wants to just save the world with the handbook for the new paradigm. Which, strangely enough, I had Scott Stevens on my show talk about weather wars and chemtrails back in the 2005. And all he wanted to talk about was high handbook for a new paradigm. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I'm just trying to talk about chemtrails, not aliens. But anyway, side note, um, uh, I started to pretend to be a Plajaran or a Palladian. And I started to, you know, slip up and call them earthlings and whatnot. And in a, in a smoke break uh, in, in between his talk, I started telling him the things that I was discovering. So here I was with Y2K and the, and the revelations of the symbolism that had occurred there. Then I went on to Bill Clinton being taken down as a, uh, you know, for his extramarital affair for the insertion of a cigar in his secretary. Right. And I'm like, uh, you know, this moment clued me in. I said, this doesn't happen to a president. We don't do this. This isn't what, you know, they would cover this up. They don't make it like national and international news. You know, we're watching Bill Clinton turn purple as they describe his insertion of a cigar into his secretary, you know, and he's like, can I take another bathroom break? Can I, you know, this was horrifying. And you don't do this to your leader. This is not something that any government would do unless they had an alternative purpose. And so that moment clicked and I said, there's this alternative pur purpose. There's psychological warfare going on here. 
And so once they took down the man of the people, you know, he's saxophone playing David Letterman watching man of the people, Bill Clinton. I said, they're going to force the next president into office. And at this moment, and, and where I, did you announce this? Did you announce this like publicly in a forum on, a, on one of your videos or? No, you know, because this was pre my understanding of the internet. Sure. Yeah, I was never heard of Alex Jones or Bill Cooper. No, I was just in basically Lawrence, Kansas or wandering the earth telling people I, I I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people in these travels. And okay. so, it, like I say, I was on a shot of claw where I juggle and teach you things. Right. Okay. There really wasn't an internet at that time. The, the you know, not like we have it today. Not like, uh, oh my God, you know. Yeah, yeah, you could I, I do Search know. things yeah. and and look into things and. Yeah, you can't go to a bar and like ask a trivia question without someone pulling out their Palm Pilot and then actually looking up the answer on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so it was good at trivia at one point. Now it doesn't mean anything. So. But I did make my my fears known, and I I would make a you know very public because I wanted people to to be amazed, right? And and so, uh, I started the projection, and as I did, I started to to correlate corporate logos into this whole scenario, and I came to the understanding of Philip sixty six and what sixty six meant. Now this thing toys into all the extraterrestrial, ultra dimension, and the abyss. Uh, 66 is the number of the fallen angels, and it's the number in Kabbalism of the abyss, where the uh, these fallen angels or Corona Zone, the demon lives, and it's the path that you have to get over to reach heaven if you want to take the most direct path to heaven in Kabbalistic magic. And so 66 in, in Hebrew turns into V and V, because 6 is V in Hebrew. So now you got W. And just as I'm starting to understand this, now you look at Hitler's Volkswagen logo, you'll see it's VW, which is a V and a V interlaced. So you got the 66, which is the fallen angels interlaced, making the third six. So Volkswagen's logo actually is 666. Uh, so is Monster Drink logo, which is actually the Hebrew 666. But anyway, that's outside the point. Um as I came to this understanding, I realized that I said, yeah, well, then I started hearing the rumblings of this W, W coming forward. And I said, yep, they're going to force W into office and they're going to make it obvious because that was the next step in the psychological warfare. First, you destroy the man, then you destroy the concept of your interaction with this man, right? Because the ultimate outcome was to bring in the emperor or dictator, right? So, uh, I said, well, they're going to force this man into office and then he will be the last American president. Uh, following this, the next president's uh, um, status will be questioned. He, he'll be an, an, an unconstitutional president. So before W was forced into office, I had predicted the birther movement. Okay, and yep. So when the birther movement came forward, I was like, well, duh, this is what I was saying. You know, uh, here here it is, you know, and, and the, that's a conspiracy within the conspiracy. Just as Jeb Bush pushing W and, and this being a pushy and coup for the presidency is a conspiracy within the conspiracy. That's what you were supposed to believe, right, that Jeb Bush put W into office. But I could show you the occult connections and how that fell and why they needed that. And then, of course, Barack Obama in the language of Jesus means lightning from heaven, which is the description of Satan in the Bible. <laughs> so everything was getting very weird for me, right? 
and it's getting very weird for me. I mean, I'm sort of following a different path. I'm kind of, you know, I, I, I'm seeing this kind of, uh, oh, you know, these, these totems almost in my path um, in a, in a similar but different way than you are, but keep going. Well, that was, that was the gist of it. That so, was... so this was all coming in the heels of your, your uh, missing time event right in florida and then it felt like you were opened up to a a a higher level of perception like you had predictive like predictive emergence would take place within your psyche now were you seeking this stuff out were you spending hours and hours at the no it it, it all came looking for me okay. uh, no doubt about that i i constantly say that i did not going looking for a single bit of information that i know it all came seeking me i was the conduit I, I started then um, back, well, when did I start? Three years, like 1997, I began talking about a middle of September event. I, I started saying they need a terrorist event to, to catalyze and to bring in uh, a homeland security, which we already knew about in the 90s, right? So, but it didn't exist. But I knew of Tom Ridge. I knew the governor was was waiting to be head of the Homeland Security. And then, of course, they made him head of the Homeland Security Department when there was no Homeland Security Department. So as uh, as I began watching this scenario in the midst of all of this, once they forced W into office, because for those three years prior to them forcing W into office during Bill Clinton's time, I kept saying there's going to be this major September attack. And the reason I said there would be a September is because the bill for the Homeland Security came up in October. So I kept saying, okay, look, they need about two weeks for public reaction time. So the middle of September, there's going to be uh, some major terrorist attack. And of course it didn't happen. And then it didn't happen. And I'm like, no, no, really, it's going to happen. And it didn't happen. And then W was forced into office, which I had projected. And so I was like, this is it. This is the year. So I went to a party here in Lawrence, Kansas, and I, the band took a break, and I stood up on the on the podium with the microphone, and I announced to the party that, oh, God, I wish I knew of Alex Jones or Bill Cooper or either of those guys. Never heard of them, you know? I didn't know anything about that world. I, yeah, I don't think that Alex Jones probably wasn't. Was he doing anything at that point? I think he was, yeah, because him and Bill Cooper were kind of having a war. And, okay, and, okay. and they both were stumbling along the exact same thing. You know, Bill Cooper, I think, brought up uh, Twin Towers and, and airplanes. And Alex, uh, how did he fan it? He, well, well, I know that he didn't predict it to the day because I asked him, you know, because, you know, I, I, I felt like I was the only one who had done this. And, and so one of the first things I, when I met Alex Jones was uh, to ask him, you know, if he had predicted it to the day. And he was like, well, no, not to okay, the day. Okay, so you predicted early. Did you say so, September? You said 9-11 because of the significance of both the numbers 9 and the numbers 11. Right. As I began to understand the esoteric connections, I, I formalized a bit more and went from the middle of September to say that it would happen on the 11th because of the significance of the numbers 9-11, to which I also state that everyone that's saying that they've seen 9-11 in this movie, that movie, or these other movies that predated the 2001 event of the Twin Towers uh, was not a projection of the Twin Tower event, but the use of the numerical value of 9-11, which is Satan Luciferian magic. 9-11 uh, is power without God. So it's, 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 a, it's a sorcerer's number because you skip 10, which is God. So you, you get all the power, but you skip God to the transmission of that power. 
9 and 11 skipping god which is the one and the zero the unification okay so uh i knew this right there's whole chapters written about it in, in esoteric books like uh the beast and the hidden god or uh which one is this i'm reading it right now uh alistair crowley and the hidden god is what it's called and there's a whole chapter on 9 and 11 you know and this was written back in the 60s so this was something that I was I was cluing in on, and so then revised my my prophecy, if you will. Uh, actually, this is what 1925. So yeah, we're talking a long time. Yeah. Um, so I I said yeah, 9/11 <laughs> is and and I have I have you know multiple eyewitnesses to this event, and but you know I didn't put it on the record, so I don't have that one for my books. So I decided to to try it again and, and to see if I could actually pull it off again and use the same hypothesis that our world is more esoteric than real and that the, the manipulators use these signs and symbols and symbolic gestures to, to carry on events. Um, and and so I went on Alex Jones's radio show in the studio and I, I said that the next major event will be 1013. And I wish, you know, when you're live on the air, it's kind of hard to really get everything you mean to say out. And I was actually... Especially Alex Jones is not shy about, uh, you know, talking either, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, strangely enough, at this show, he just kept kind of waving me on and just like, just go ahead, just go ahead. And, well, this no, this was the second one. Well, either way, they had hyped me up on this Starbucks coffee. Man, that stuff has to be genetically modified. I'm not I'm not it's equipped got for... The, it's got the two-tailed mermaid on the... On the... Yeah, yeah, Columbia, which we didn't actually get to, but um, yeah, she, I was all jazzed up, and I didn't get into the full prospect of saying, well, okay, because I'm saying the numbers ten, thirteen, this is a Templar crisis, and it's going to deal with the Temple Mount, and it's going to deal with the uh, the banking system because it was the Templar that crafted the banking system. And so it's a symbolic gesture for it to happen on 1013. And of course, that was the day that Bernanke signed all the documents to say that they had a banker bailout, which he wouldn't sign the day before. He refused to sign until 1013. It's 1013, and, 2009, 2008. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, the headline in, 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 in Austin, Texas was 1013 bigger than 911. You know, and so I felt completely vindicated. I was like, look, there it is, you know, and and uh, no one noticed. And actually, the YouTube clip that is of Alex Jones, is there, you know, you can get it on FreemanTV.com, but you can't get it on YouTube. That portion has the audio removed. Okay, then none of this surprises me. Now, so just so you know, there was a plane hijacked, stolen, a bit more, more correctly, on 9-11, and flown into the White House. Do you remember that? The the Cessna. Yeah, yeah. Was that, that a nine eleven event? Was, it was. It actually was hit the White House at like one in the morning or two in the morning on uh, September twelfth, but it was stolen from the airport on um, September eleventh, nineteen ninety four. Huh. Very early yeah. on in. Uh, excuse me. Would that been? Very that, with, with first year of Bill Clinton's presidency, I think that would I'm trying to figure out the yeah. 94, 95. I think it was 95. Um, so uh, yeah, so it's so interesting that like all the, I never heard that. I remember it really clearly. I remember you know there was the all the news. I remember the there's a New York or excuse me a Time magazine you know one of those illustrations like a 3D mock up and illustration showing the route of the plane into the uh, 
into the lawn of the White House and how the engine, you know, it hit the lawn first and then the engine skittered and bumped into a wall and broke some windows. Right. Um, but uh, but that never got mentioned in all the stuff where, you know, like the, you know, everyone at the in the highest position in government was sort of shrugging their shoulders and said, huh, who would have thunk a hijacked airplane, you know, like flown by crazies, flown right. into a, you know, one of our federal buildings, you know, yeah. never crossed when, our when mind. When did that happen? Yeah. yeah it, you know, it happened on, you know, the first year of Bill Clinton's presidency right. on 9-11. Yeah. And, and wow, I didn't know it was a 9-11 event. It was, uh, it was uh, 9-12 that, is actually when the plane crashed. Right. The plane was stolen. Right. So on 9-11. But the, the thing is, there there are these symbolic gestures. So the the dog Sirius, of course, Sirius is the dog star, and they left the dog Sirius in the twin towers in a cage to burn, and then made a big. Was that the dog's name? Is Sirius? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so you know, the dog works on what patrol does the dog work on? I forgot. Canine patrol. K is the eleventh letter, and then nine. So. Oh yeah, yeah, nine, yeah, so yeah, yeah. You're absolutely together. correct. Yeah. yeah. So serious, the dog. Yeah. I, in fact, I have a. Anyway. anyway and, um, and you know, clues like this give me ideas to to watch certain things. So when they announced the the piracy of the Sirius Star in in Yemen, I began watching that because it's a clue for you know anyone that's in the esoteric to look that direction. You can't help it, you know, because you're you're clued into these words, and. So when the Sirius star went down and, and they had the piracy there, of course, every nation in the world came to Yemen, right? Like there were military boats from every continent. And what year was this? Um, well, there was a, a massive magnetic anomaly going on and they were moving the Ark of the Covenant. Supposedly, okay. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I covered this. Uh, it's probably like four years ago or so. Like 2009. Yeah. Okay. This is when Aaron McCullum first burst onto the scene and he was talking about the interdimensional portal um, uh, that was opening up in, in um, I think, Yemen. Uh, yeah. So and he talked about his insider knowledge on that stuff. Supposedly his insider knowledge. Yeah. We hung out a bit. Uh, we had quite a lunch there. We were with Andrew Bashago who's all discussing what it was like to live on Mars. And yep. He's the, he's just so, I mean, we're, we're going fast and furious here and I'm not really concerned. I guess I'm a little bit concerned that people who, who haven't, um, you know, who are listening to this may not be able to keep up. Yeah, Andrew Bashago claims to have gone to Mars. I, did he go to Mars with, uh, Barack with Obama? Barack Obama. Yeah. Just, and, uh, and that would have been in the early eighties when they were both college students. And time travel back to watch the Lincoln Gettysburg address where he lost his shoes. And did he take uh, blood from Jesus's toe? No, that was Stuart Swerdlow. Okay, fair. Sorry, Who, I'm just playing this. Again. It's yeah, hard no, to keep no. Up with this stuff. Funny okay. note about Stuart Swerdlow is um, uh, when 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 questioned about whether or not Barack Obama could be a clone of Akhenaten, which of course is my prime theory at this moment, uh, he he said, "I think that guy's smoking too much weed." Uh, Talking about you. Here, Stuart Swerdlow says that he was teleported back in time to take a sample of Jesus's blood out of his toe. Brought back to the present and then uh, uh, elevated to Mars to then deposit that blood to, to grow the Antichrist. But I'm smoking too much weed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, so, so here, let me, I'm going to jump in right now and say this. I've got this kind of written down here. And I've said, actually, I gave this almost the exact same spiel to William Henry when I interviewed him on this program. And you are doing this thing where you, you know, you talk, you talk fast, you're jumping from one subject to another, you're, you know, you're going point after point. Um, there, you know, me, the listener, 
you know, like I, I'm not attempting to push the pause button and then going, you know, to look up, you know, each individual. I'm not going to like esoteric libraries to fact check what you're saying. Um, but uh, what is sort of emerging is is almost like a um like a like a mythic metaphor for reality like i i don't know you know like i'm not going to make any claims at all to whether what you're saying is is literal truth you know like uh, you know I, I i would be irresponsible of me to 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 try to uh you know say that barack obama is a clone right so but what i can say is that um when i let your your um spiel kind of kind of wash over me if i just if i stop trying to logically make sense of it right like ooh, ooh, you know your your the logical side of my brain is fighting but the creative side of my brain is capable of absorbing this and i'll say it's absorbing it in the same way that like a like a metaphor or a myth can be absorbed at a deeper level than um than like a factual reporting does that make sense to you what i'm i guess what i'm trying to say yeah you know uh, for me I, i'm i'm so like grounded into this thing that that it's hard for me to to release it into some sort of mythical ethos but oh yeah yeah and, and in the same sense like you know like if i took the time machine back to ancient greece you know like i i would have my you know like would i want to talk to the to the um to the academic that's sitting in his toga holding court with his students you know and ha and listen to him sort of talk about um you know the 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 gods and and the the uh morality and you know or would i want to go and hang out on the path that comes down from mount olympus and you know talk to the to the people with fire in their eyes that have just sort of communed with the great beyond um you know to me that answer is easy i would i would absolutely ignore the the academic and just you know and go to those to the to the zealots and so i'll include you in that so yes yeah, so yeah. anyway i i'm not asking you to to uh to change your thoughts about any of this and try to but I'm well, I, I can't, you know, the thing is, if you look at the imagery now, you know, we just speaking about Barack Obama, but it's not just Barack, it's the entire family. So now the odds, I, that's where I want to challenge the logical mind. Oh, oh, my logical mind is is fighting. You know what I mean? My logical mind is challenged. You know, what it is. are the odds of of an entire family being identical to this this Egyptian family? Identical in every way, shape, or form. I mean, people can't even tell that I split the the Queen T and Michelle Obama picture in half. And so, they Queen T was the daughter of Akhenaten. No. Was the mother? Okay, mother, mother of, of Akhenaten. Akhenaten. So, in this scenario, Barack Obama would be living with his mother, Michelle. Okay. Right. But this is not unusual in Egyptian culture at all. And actually, Queen T was the power behind the, the throne in Akhenaten's period. And what we realize now, this is 3000 years ago, is that well, 3500 is that. Uh, that Akhenaten was was the first ancient astronaut, you know, he's the one that all TV shows go to that all hypotheses go to because here he was with this big old cone head flipping Egypt's religion on its head and starting this religion of the one true God like some Cylon out of Battlestar Galactica. Right. Mm -hmm. And so everyone focused on Akhenaten for that reason. And it, uh, so he's he's right there at the heart of of the extraterrestrial current on planet Earth. 
But beyond that, Akhenaten is, is, is the reputed head of the Rosicrucian order. Now, the Rosicrucians are an Akhenaten. esoteric order. Yeah. So Rosicrucian, Rose means red like blood, and Crucian means Christ? I always thought that was like the order of the blood of Christ. Uh, the Rosy Cross, yeah. 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 No, uh, all of the poetry, well, according to the Rosicrucians, right? Uh, that's what I'm saying. Uh, I have a book from the initiates known as Unto the I Grant, which is a collection of poetry and writing, which is attributed to Akhenaten, but I believe was found in China. Um, very interesting when you start looking into Akhenaten and, and the connections. And, and then I went to the Rosicrucian Museum, and you can watch that on our Miss Emily channel on Freeman TV. Uh, and where's the we, Rosicrucian Museum? Right, uh, in, in, in San Diego, I think right. it was, uh, somewhere like that. Right. Uh, I never know when or where I am. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going. And but so the entire the entire edifice is dedicated to Akhenaten and the Aten, and of course it's the Rosicrucian headquarters. So um and then every Mason Lodge I've ever been to that has grand rooms, such as the New York Grand Lodge or the Philadelphia Grand Lodge, or which was Benjamin Franklin's lodge or Houdini's Lodge, uh, or even uh, uh, Roosevelt's Lodge. I've been to a mall. I know you can you can look at the pictures. I have a photography section on my website. You can look at all the different Masonic lodges and see all the different crazy rooms inside there. So, like in New York, there's a skyscraper that is the Grand Lodge of New York, where I filmed a movie with Dan Fogler called uh, Don Peyote, which, which is yet to come out. It should be coming out soon. It's going to be in Sundance, I guess, in January. Okay, I have an acquaintance named Anya Briggs who performed a uh, channeling session, like live, where she uh, like uh, gave a channeled reading for Dan Fogler, you know, on camera. Oh yeah, is she in the movie? I haven't seen. She's in. She's supposedly going to be in the movie. I have not. You know, that's all I know. So because uh, I have a copy. Ooh, she's in there. I, I, that's last. I don't know. Maybe she never. She didn't make the final cut. So no, I have to look. But no, it's not the final cut. I have a. I have a pre pre version. Okay. Um, doesn't have any of the CGI yet. But yeah, Dan Don Peyote, man, it's hilarious. It's, a great it's, pun, it's yeah, epic. So. It's so fun. I wish I had done better. And they actually cut most of my scenes because we filmed them at the New York Grand Lodge, and the Masons wouldn't sign off on it. So that was kind of a bummer because most of my scenes were filmed in the lodge. And, and so it's on like 23rd Street or something? Yeah, it was the 1013 event when all the UFOs were flying over it. And now I did a podcast a while ago. I followed that pretty closely um, when it was happening. I'm, I'm uh, yeah, so I'm convinced that some of the things that were photographed and released were balloons. There's a, there, and I, and I, th yeah, and yeah, then I'm yeah. Convinced there was two. I'm also, uh, some of the things seem very odd in the footage that, that you can get on YouTube. Now, I used to live in New York City. I'm very intimate with the town. Um, like, I, I don't understand why all the footage, like all the interviews, all the, the, all the, the news footage is at the corner of 23rd and 8th Avenue, um, you know, that showed up, that, that's available on YouTube. There's, you know, right. the, the thing that's fascinating is that the, the one place on planet Earth where there's probably more cameras snapping at any moment, you know, all day long is on the um, observatory balcony of the Empire State Building, which would have had the most spectacular view of any event like that. And I just, mm. I'm, I'm at a loss to why that's not, um, 
I haven't seen any of that. Yeah, it's curious because I I know I know people that were there, you know, so I, I I know eyewitnesses to the event, and they were saying that those balloons that you saw weren't what we saw, and that there was a, a host of orbs out there. And what had happened is I was on Jack Blood uh, Deadline Live on ten thirteen, and we were doing a War of the Worlds scenario. I was actually not clued in right off the bat. I was brought in as the extraterrestrial advisor or, you know, commentator on the whole scenario for it. And I didn't know that he was kind of putting on a sham. He wanted to do kind of a, you know, an invasion radio show that day. And so we're kind of going through the motions and we hadn't even begun to make it a faux invasion yet. Right. Cause they had just clued me in off air what we were going to do. And, um, so they hadn't even begun that when the phone started ringing and the actual invasion started to occur. So we started to get the live calls straight from New York. Of, no, it's really happening. We're here now. And, you know, we're we're backtracking going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this, you know, our, wait, what's going on? Are we playing in our own play or is this real? And, you know, so we, we did cover that all live from New York when it was happening on Jack Blood. Um, I don't know, but it did occur all over this Masonic temple, which does have a big room dedicated to Akhenaten. And, uh, and I, now I'm just, I'm, I know that's on the <laughs> west side I'm, uh, of, of the city that, where the, where the uh, Mason building is. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely know it's on 23rd Street. So that seems to be odd that that's where the, uh, you know, roughly 23rd and 8th, I think, is where the, um, all the footage was being shot that day, the YouTube stuff. Yeah, it's all right there at the Mason Temple. Yeah. Uh, or at least that's, you know, what the friends of mine were were saying. And you know, when you yeah, when you look at the footage, you you're definitely right there where. So, you know, curious, curious things that just keep inter interconnecting, interlocking, but the the whole thing about Obama being a clone, I I didn't really intend or know that I was going to get into this. And let me just preface this by talking a little bit about how uh, things bubble to the surface, because, you know, there's a lot of coincidences and information that comes to the, the forefront. And we're like, who was first? Who was first? Who copied who? Right. Well, curious. No, Michael Cesarian. Right. He, he thought I was copying him. Oh, now, OK. Because he was saying the same thing. No, no. Actually, uh, but strangely enough, we both started our, our careers about the same time. I would love to know when he started his first documentary, which, of course, was corporate logos and their occult meanings. Now, my first documentary starting in 2005 was corporate logos and its occult meanings. This is so interesting because 2005 wasn't that long ago. And, and in my sort of anecdotal research, like I don't have like a, you know, a computerized spreadsheet where I keep track of all these things exactly um, like 2005 2006 is sort of a um, you know like it feels like the dam almost bursts where all of a sudden all these folks are, are coming forward uh, with their experiences uh, as well as you know these odd compulsions to do things you know like to become a Reiki master or to um, you know whatever it might be but so it's right around 2005 2006 that those years show up over and over again um oh so so um Michael Tessarian here's a question I'm do you have any uh, has he ever given any clues whether he's had UFO contact experiences no well he won't talk to me okay uh but well I so I'm sorry, we, I, I sidetracked we, you a little bit there. I'm sorry, we had both released the same film, but the curious point was, well, one, I think mine's right and his wrong, uh, but the other thing was, 
uh, that we both started it with the exact same music. What was the music? Uh, it was a random song from uh, Dead Can Dance. <laughs> oh, okay. And I felt like it just kind of set the mode, the mood for what I was doing. And it probably had a name that was maybe apropos. I don't remember now. But, you know, when I finally, I, I, I aired my TV show and stuff, and then people said, well, you got to get this guy Michael Tessarian on. So he was one of, if not my very first outside guest, you know, out of the studio guest. Um, and I had him on, and and I, he sent me his DVDs, and I turned it on, and I'm like, holy shit, you know, this is crazy. Then we both opened at the same time, at the same place, on the same topic, with the same music. And were you? How were your your um? Did was it divergent? Like the 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 what you were picking out in logos? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. His idea, his concept was that it was based on astrology because most of his background goes to astrology. Okay, but, I mean, in a weird way that you know, it's it's you know, we're dealing with a grand sort of. I mean, reality itself is like a Rorschach test. You know what I mean? You're going to interpret whatever you want. You know, I mean, the mm -hmm. crazy fundamentalist Christians are are certainly seeing the world differently than the uh, you know, the... well, let's consider how many signs of Satan I have found, and I am not at all looking for Satan. What I've done is I've taken one system of a magic, which I have proven to be at the heart of our civilization, which is the Freemasonic magic, which is based in the Kabbalah. So I've taken one system of magic and applied it as a as a cipher to all that I see, because I know they're the ones in charge of putting the the gold and arches on McDonald's and the, uh, the rays on, uh, you know, Walmart and all of these things that then I can, because I can prove to you, I've gone to all the Mason temples. I can prove Ray Kroc of, of McDonald's is a Freemason. Dave Thomas of Wendy's is a Freemason. You know, I could go on and on RCA Martin, you know what I mean? Every corporation I've, I've, I've got a list. I've got, you know, all the documentation to show that every major corporation has been founded by a Freemason. So it's a pretty safe jump to say that the corporate logo was Freemasonic in origin. So then I apply the Kabbalistic magic to it to understand it. And what it turns out is that each of the corporate logos is actually a representation of uh, an aspect of the Masonic ritual. So here you are, you're, you're brought into this darkened lodge with your blindfold and your around your neck and your, your chest is bared and somebody jabs a sword into your chest and you have to go through this right and ritual of death and resurrection of Hiram Abiff, who I've now shown you as the extraterrestrial who was brought back to build the Ark of or the temple for the housing of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Solomon's temple, which every Masonic lodge is, is based on. So every lodge is Solomon's temple and the, the master is, of course, Solomon in, in respect, right? But uh, as you go through this ritual, you go through different steps and phases through it. And like one part is you will circle the altar three times while they kind of chant and do things behind you and stuff. You're all blindfolded, remember? But the circling of the altar three times actually uh, goes into a mathematical equivalent, which is the 47th proposition of Euclid, right? And, and so you could take this, which is actually circling the square or squaring the circle, I guess is what it is. And, uh, and it becomes a symbol. Uh, so the, the symbol becomes a square, three squares with one canted. And, and this is, uh, you'll see it in the 47th proposition of Euclid. It's got three squares and one of them is with an equilateral triangle 
or a 90 degree triangle, I guess it's on there. Isosceles and and then the, the canted square. So then the canted square, you can take that and you can put that into the different symbols. And it actually symbolizes Horus or the rising sun. And and that's how it all gets deciphered. And, and, but I use one system of magic, one system that I can prove is in charge. And then I decipher it through their rituals. Whereas Tessarian was looking at everything astrologically where he, he hit many of them right, you know, because there are a lot of astrological significance in the ideas of magic. But uh, the overall viewpoint, he, he missed the point, I felt, in that whole scenario. But that wasn't really the point of bringing him up. It was it was that, you know, we both opened this exact same topic without knowing each other. And then then when I sent him my article on, on Barack Akhenaten, is what I was calling it at the time, uh, the cloning of Obama in Akhenaten, uh, he took a look at it for about five minutes and wrote me back and said, I don't see my name on there anywhere. I'm like, well, why would your day be on here? I mean, I know you talk about Akhenaten, but that's why I was writing you was to see if you wanted to chime in because I can't find any information from you about Akhenaten. And he's, he came back, no, that's my Akhenaten. I'm the only one that talks about him and da, da, da. And, and I'm like, okay, you're getting a little freaky now. Uh, you know. <laughs> oh, this funny world. Yeah, there's a, whatever, yeah. the snake pit of, of uh, it's like go to a UFO convention and it's, it's uh it's not love and light. It's a bunch of people whispering about each other behind their backs. So. Well, for me, it, yeah, I was like, come on, let's, you know, let's collaborate. <laughs> you, know, you and I, we're making the same movies. We're using the same music. Uh, we're obviously on the same track. You're talking about Akhenaten. Why don't you come, you know, join me and and we'll we'll do something like this. And instead he gets pissed off and then we have to have dinner together. And he has to sit there all silent and sulking because he couldn't talk around me because he didn't want to. He put himself in a position. So, so here, I'll just tell a quick story. So, are you familiar with Mac Tonys? No. Mac Tonys was a UFO researcher and blogger. He died very young at the age of 34. Was, uh, that happened in October of 2009. Uh, and he, he, him and I were quite close. He died of every, you know, there's no conspiracy at all that anyone can, uh, you know, whatever. There was lots of conspiracy speculation and kind of madness on the internet when he died. But um, having talked to his family and, and talked to some of his close friends, um, you know, he died of natural causes. He had a heart condition that was pre-existing, and uh, he died peacefully in his sleep, as far as anyone can tell. But um, so he he wrote a book called The Crypto Terrestrials. It's a short little book. You should get it and read it. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, he's a beautiful writer. And he also wrote a book on Mars called uh, After the Martian Apocalypse. You know, and I just, am familiar with the, the crypto terrestrials. Okay. Yeah, which is which I actually did the illustrations for that book. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I was pretty I was pretty close with Mac. We talked on the phone a lot, uh, and um, so so here's what I was going to say is that uh, in November of 2006, I got up one morning and I just kind of in a sort of coffee induced flurry, I wrote this little essay, and that essay I think is the very first post on my blog that I did. Um, that had been the, the blog started in 2009, so the essay was sitting around for a couple of years. But uh, it's a, it's a sort of comparing and contrasting the UFO phenomena and its interactions with humans, the way a cat plays with string. You know, uh, you know, the the cat can never quite catch the string. The cat is looking at the string and not looking at the hand that's pulling the string. Right. So that's to me 
there's a metaphor there because there's the UFO phenomena. I'm I'm less concerned with the little metal spaceships and what's the mechanism, what's the what's the intelligence behind that. So, um, uh, I meet Mac Tony's online. I get to know him. I you know we talk on the phone, and during this I realize that he wrote an essay on cats and laser pointers. Uh, the essays are about the same length. You read the two essays side by side. They're, for all intent and purpose, the same essay. He's, you know, using sort of a different poetic style than I'm, I was. But, um, and we wrote them both in November of 2006. So, um, so you know, whatever these things, these things happen, and to me, these things are clues. You know, yeah, you just reminded me that. You know, there was a lot of correlations and connections as well, because David Serrata, I think, was said he was abducted about the same time that my Daytona Beach event happened. And when I was writing or drawing the picture on the Sirius and Alpha Draconis, my picture at 10 years old, at that same moment, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who wrote the Illuminatus trilogy and many other great books, uh, was was writing The Cosmic Trigger on how he had received communication from Sirius in, uh, in 1976, 77, right when I was, or 76, 77, right when I was getting the, the transmission. And so did, uh, I think it was Terrence McKenna uh, was also receiving communications from Sirius at the same time that I was drawing that picture. So there was a lot of weird connections there. Yeah, and then also um, uh, Philip K. Dick talked about uh, receiving uh, messages from Sirius, as well as Timothy Leary, and I think Doris Lessing, as she's a science fiction writer, she talked about receiving uh, uh, messages from Sirius. This would have all been about the same time. And right in that, uh, John Lilly, another character from that crew of, uh, you know, sort of that Harvard LSD-taking crew, he, um, though he didn't say it was from Sirius, he was receiving telepathic messages from what he just called a, a... uh, alien mind. So, yeah, this gets gets it gets very weird. This stuff, and uh, and that to me says something more is going on than little you know scientists on a on a metal spaceship flying here to collect data. I mean, that's us. That's that we're just we're just anthropomorphizing us a little farther in the in the future, um, and and something weirder is taking taking place. Yeah, I, I definitely am trying to look to the hand behind. And I, what I see is a consistent extraterrestrial influence on civilization from the very beginning to now. Uh, it seems consistent and runs like as if they left the secret societies here as a, uh, a managing core and the gods themselves kind of left. Now, I just came across a video of an eight-foot alien uh, reported on Taiwanese TV. I think it was Taiwan. I just put it in my weird stuff. I have, I have a collection of weird videos on my website whenever something pops up and I think it's, you know, amazing and uh, I throw it in there or if it's current and topical and things. So uh, weird videos is a great place to go to ca- catch up. I just also posted the Walt Disney UFO extravaganza, the, which the that thing- one... The thing that they made, uh, like, to introduce a, like, Alien Encounters yes, uh, ride exactly. at Disneyland? Yes. With Robert Urich doing the... Yes. I remember yes. watching that, oh. and I remember thinking that was that was kind of weird. I was at Alien Encounters when that opened, and uh, 
you know, like I say, I was one of the first people to walk into to Epcot and Disney and stuff. And uh, yeah, I remember it, you know, being quite frightening and, and aliens coming to eat you and stuff. It was very interactive. That was kind of the era of like a lot of, that was like post uh, aliens were, you know, the gooey slime. And this is when George Lucas was, uh, when Tomorrowland was was coming forward. Uh, that's when George Lucas got involved with Disney all the way back then. Oh, okay. And I, um, I'm just trying to think of this. Captain EO was sort of, it was right around that same time that Captain EO was being projected on a 3D movie screen in Tomorrowland. Yes. Yes. The, the Michael Jackson connection. Now, I did a fantastic interview with uh, David Lewis Anderson of the Anderson Institute, which is supposedly a time travel institute. And he had warned me that they were going to go black. And, and currently you cannot find any references to the Anderson Institute on the a- Internet anymore, uh, I think other than the show I did with him and the shows he did on Coast to Coast. Uh, but at that moment was the moment Michael Jackson had just finished uh, <laughs> announcing the This Is It concert, 30 days in the O2 arena, and then died, right? Yeah. But the curious note about this was that when Michael Jackson died, and I put that in quotes personally, he was in debt $500,000 to the Saudi Arabian prince, and and no one could really fathom why he was in this this money hole. You know, where did Michael's money go? And it was all over the news that he was in debt to the Saudi Arabian, and but no one could figure out why. Uh, well, as I'm talking with David Lewis Anderson, well, what happens is uh, a month after Michael Jackson's death, all of a sudden everyone notices a bust in the Chicago Museum that's identical to Michael Jackson. I mean, as much as Akhenaten looks like Obama and Queen T and Michelle, uh, this pharaoh or whoever, they say it was actually a, a woman, but you would think that of Michael if you saw him. You know. So and, this was after all the plastic surgery and his, his, yeah, his it's thin like, little nose and everything. No, it's identical. Yeah, like you can see this on my website uh, in the podcast or on the Future Outlook where you can see or on the Is Obama a Clone article where you can I split the faces again, you know, and it's right down to the bus nose and everything i mean it is michael jackson in this ancient uh statue which came from akhenaten's period which is an unknown female pharaoh according to the chicago museum but dated to akhenaten's time and no one had ever noticed it until after michael jackson died now i personally had never believed michael jackson died and i have a number of videos inside of the weird video section that show like michael jackson climbing out of the back of the coroner's truck or the mysterious moving of Michael Jackson's body in the middle of the night, or the fact that they announced that they removed his brain, you know, these weird things that came up. And Michael Jackson's obsession with being Apollo or being a god or being a pharaoh, his connections with Akhenaten and, uh, uh, what was it, This Is The Time, uh, I forgot the name of the exact name of that song, uh, where Eddie Murphy's playing Akhenaten and, and Michael Jackson's the golden boy that appears and has all these magical powers. Um, well, you know, lo and behold, if Michael Jackson wasn't investigating time travel, he was investigating every form and fashion of uh, life extension. So he was hanging out with Uri Geller. Now, Uri Geller was the, the psychic, uh, the Israeli psychic who was channeling the nine the gods that seem to be influencing the heads of our, our, our nations, the nine extraterrestrial gods of Egypt. That's uh, 
Osiris, Is, Isis, Nept, uh, Geb, Neptis, uh, Ra, you know, uh, they actually sing all about it in the Spielberg film, but you can get all that on my website too. Um, so uh, Uri Geller and Michael Jackson hanging out at Raelians, right? Now I was there watching Congress when I watched a lot of C-SPAN in my time and I was watching Congress when Ra L spoke before Congress about cloning humans. Now here was a man in his big white puffy space suit with a swastika and a star of David around his neck uh, standing before Congress saying, you cannot stop human cloning, you know? And I got more and more stories about Rael and his followers and, and interlockings with 9-11 and stuff too. It's crazy how this story goes. But, uh, you know, I, I was introduced to this whole topic of cloning mummies way back in the 80s when, when um, uh, Nature Magazine published the article on the fact that they had cloned a mummy from about Akhenaten's period. Now, they, they simply cloned cells. They did not clone the person. And the thing of it was is that mummification saves a viable cell for cloning. And, and this has been a proven scientific fact. It's a mystery, though, because we don't know how it's done. We've tried mummifying Stalin or the Russians mummified Stalin and Lenin, and both of them are rotting. There's a secret that the, the ancient Egyptians knew that we don't know today. There was a 72-day ritual that was required to mummify a, a pharaoh. And then this mummification process saves a viable cell. Now, the, mummy, the, the pharaohs were mummified because they were to be resurrected in bodily form in somewhere around 3,000 years. It was believed by the pharaohs themselves that they would be brought back. So I've known about this for, you know, since high school. And then I, I discussed it in my first documentary on the ancient astronaut hypothesis I call Return of the Nephilim. And I talk about us cloning mummies. Now, this was 2006 when I put this out, 84 when I started thinking about it. And then, lo and behold, here comes Mr. Lightning from Heaven himself, Barack Obama, whose phrase, yes, we can, played in reverse, says, thank you, Satan, very clearly. And there's three layers to Barack Obama that you must understand. One is the satanic connection. The other is this Egyptian Rosicrucian connection. And the final is the political spectrum where he's supposed to be this uh, arrogant, fraudulent uh, pushing of, uh, you know, pissing off every nation's head that there is. You know, that's his, his, his game plan. Just as W was supposed to be stupid, a stupid emperor, um, Barack Obama is supposed to be a flagrant, cheap, president that, that you know spends billions of dollars but is buys tony brown a, a plastic helicopter for a president you know um so when when i started to realize and and you know you we brought up william henry and william henry had put together this whole baraka not an idea as well but i didn't know that at the time i found out later and I, I had put together my little cross face of Obama because I, I recognized him immediately on the Time magazine cover. I was like, that's Akhenaten, you know? And, and I put together this artwork and I said, oh, well, okay, his job is to herald a space war and use asteroids as the threat. Now, I got this, of course, from Carol Rosen and Werner von Braun. Okay, back to the UFO abduction connection. Carol Rosen has come forward with her contact experiences. 
Okay. So All right. Just keep, yeah, yeah. just, just so you know, it's okay. So, you know, I'm clued in there and, and I start looking at the puzzle. So I make an artwork of Barack Obama split face with Akhenaten and you can, you know, other than the color difference, you can't tell that they're different people. And then I put an asteroid hurtling towards his head with a bunch of people running and stuff, you know, as a, as a symbolic gesture of what I saw coming. Just as back when on 9-11, I did a poster with Tom Ridge handing you the national ID card with the Twin Towers burning with George Bush standing on the podium over the Twin Towers. You know, I, I had outlined a lot of what I saw coming. Um, in the same poster, this was what my projection, you know, because this is what was supposed to happen. And lo and behold, if they didn't announce, oh, my God, there's an asteroid hurtling towards planet Earth and it's going to destroy all life in 2029 or 2036 or maybe not at all. And they then say this asteroid is known as Apophis. And of course, Apophis is the Satan of Akhenaten's religion. And here's Barack Obama making jokes saying that he was sent here by his father, Jarrell to save the planet Earth, and, you know, making himself Superman. And, and lo and behold, if the asteroid that's supposed to be, be fight is not the Satan of Akhenaten's religion, so then this all tied in. Along with uh, Anubis being traveled around the United States and some of the world, uh, heralding Akhenaten and Queen T. If you went to any of the King Tut exhibits, you were not going to see King Tut one bit. I promise you, I went to a couple of them. What you'll see is all of the Akhenaten and Queen T stuff. As if, as if they were heralding these people's resurrection. Now, the cloning of them is absolutely possible, plausible, and he might even be Osama bin Laden as well. <laughs> and then there's another one of them that's doing commercials as Barack Obama in Indonesia, right? There were a lot of them. Um, but the thing of it is, is uh, you know, we have the, the puzzle that's unfolding. So uh, no one actually had ever announced that they found Akhenaten's mummy. It's been a mystery for 120 years since they discovered the KV-55 mummy and said, this is Akhenaten. One doctor said, no, this is a woman. And the other doctor said, no, it's a man. Because Akhenaten was so weirdly shaped. You know, he had these big hips and, and a cone head and stuff. And and so no one could ever actually identify. The, the tomb itself had been desecrated and all the names of Akhenaten had been scraped out. But they found Queen T's toilet there, and they found a bunch of Akhenaten stuff, so they, they, they decided. But what had happened is that this mummy mystery got shelved. And according to Zahi Hawass, who was the guy in charge of the Giza Plateau during the capping of the Great Pyramid, uh, announced that he had had Akhenaten's DNA all along, that it was a national security secret, but here it is now, and we're going to show you on the Discovery Channel. So if you watch the Discovery Channel of who is King Tut's daddy, you will see them hold up the DNA of the KV-55 mummy, which, of course, is Akhenaten, and then they announce. But that was the moment I went, oh, my God, you know, because I had already laid out the entire theory, but I could not prove that they had Akhenaten's DNA until they announced it after the fact for me. You know, this was all late in the day when they finally announced that they actually had the DNA that I was saying they cloned. So they, they announced they had Queen T, they had Akhenaten, they had everybody. And then, of course, Barack Obama himself came out and released funding on, uh, released the restrictions on funding for stem cell research, which, of course, he said could not be used for reproduction, as I'm saying he is a reproductive clone, but could be used for experimentation, which, of course, is going on because they launched six adult stem cells up to the International Space Station to hang out with the telepresence robot, Robonaut 2, 
up there on the International Space Station. We got clones and drones and Battlestar Galactica coming out our wazoo at this very moment. I mean, the X-37B robotics autonomous space plane is orbiting us. Robonaut 2 can have a mind transferred into it, which was another thing Michael Jackson was looking into. He was trying to hire this roboticist, and I have him on record, uh, to, to transmit his soul into this robot. And, and Michael Jackson was looking into all of these things, and I guarantee you he paid a Saudi Arabian to travel back and become a pharaoh in Akhenaten's period. Because when I talked to David Lewis Anderson to complete that story, I found out that the one place that the time travel cops can't control time travel is in Saudi Arabia. And so I brought the whole Michael Jackson scenario up with him, and he agreed that it, it fit the bill. Huh. There you have it. Okay. <laughs> hey, um, we've been going at it for a little over two hours now. Hey, look, just I've, the last couple questions here. Um, uh, I ask this of every single person. How has synchronicity played a role in your life? It's it's the uh, the epitome of my existence. I I I went off on these travels. I found a wondrous group of humans that seem to be like a subculture in every region of the United States. And they're everywhere, these loving, beautiful people that I just call rainbow. But they don't necessarily have to be the rainbow gatherers. They're in homes. They're wherever. They're, they're all out there, these angels that are there to, to help you on your sign path. What I've found is that you can have everything you want. The problem is, is that what people want has been projected and programmed into them. And so they don't realize that they don't even know what they want. So as a fool stepping off the edge of the cliff like I did, just jumping into a van and going off into the midst of you know the ethers, because I had no idea where I was going, where I was going to sleep, what was going to happen, where my money was going to come from, or anything like that. I had no idea of what I was doing, but I didn't think about it either. I didn't care. I, you know, I had a van. I had some juggling sticks. I had a dog and a friend. Let's go. And I found this miraculous path that led me here, there, and everywhere, all over the United States until I was finally brought just straight back to my home. Now, here I am in a vehicle supporting it, supporting friends. And, and we, we basically were on what we call the friendship agenda. But I had no idea of what I was doing. And when I returned home and start to tell the tales of being at this festival. I, you know, I've been to everything from the Grateful Dead family reunion to Lollapalooza. I've, anything that's big and happening, I'm there. And any, uh, you know, things that rich people do, skiing or, you know, uh, up in the Hamptons for whatever, you know, I do all that as well, you know. Uh, and without any job, without any thought, without any money, I, I live the life of a rich millionaire, but I, I have no money. And I come home and I would tell my tales and the people finally asked me, you know, well, how did you do all this? How, how could you afford that? And it wasn't until I was even asked that I'd ever even considered it. So then, and of course, like I was saying, this was 1993. So I didn't really have any words to describe what I, what was happening. I just like, well, you know, one thing led to another and everything was perfect. And this person brought me to that person and I couldn't believe the things. And, you know, I didn't even know this stuff existed. I had no idea I could do this. I learned to be a glass blower. I was making lighter leisures. I was, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, and so it, I was like, I don't know, but I, I can do it and let's do it again. And so I'd grab a new friend that had never seen anything and they would start to feel panic as soon as you're out on the open ocean, you know, you're out there in the middle of whatever, you don't know where you are. 
and they they tend to panic you know like oh my god what are we gonna do how do we sleep where are we gonna eat what are we gonna do and i'm like don't worry it's all good just follow and i'll show you how this works and i would bring initiates i guess into the whole situation and they would watch how the perfect scenarios i mean as as a just a side example a friend or we're we're in massachusetts i think and uh yeah and i'm i'm juggling around not really making any money and uh, you know i would juggle eight hours and maybe make 25 dollars you know and uh i i i was like they're like what are we gonna do what are we gonna do because and and so i was like look i'm gonna go sort the situation i'll have our money and i'll have a plan and i'll be right back and I walk off and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just juggling. And somebody notices my juggling and they're like, hey, come over here, juggle here. Hey, can I buy those? And they buy the sticks. And I'm like, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm looking for something to do. And they're like, oh, well, you got to go to Wendell Mass and go sit at the coffee shop. And there someone will come up and take you home. And I was like, all right. So <laughs> I'm a fool, right? I walk back to my friends and I tell them this is what we're doing. And they're like, what? So we don't even know where Wendell Mass is. You know, we're like, hey, whatever. So we drive there. And we go and we, and sure enough, there's that coffee shop. It's just a little shack on the side of the road. Wendell Mass is like, if you blinked, you wouldn't even know, you know, even in, when you're in it, you didn't know you were in it. And, but there was the shack for the coffee shop. And we sat down at the table and lo and behold, this lady walked up and said, hey, you guys need a place, <laughs> you know? And, and so it was just, you know, consistently like that until 96 when uh, the Celestine prophecies came out. Oh, ah, now I've got, now I've got words. Now I've got terms. Now I've got concepts. Yes, this is what I'm doing right here. You don't need to hear my stories. Just read this book. And sure enough, everywhere I went, it didn't matter where I was, Rainbow, downtown New York, whatever. It didn't matter. I was running into people reading the Celestine Prophecies. I would stop people at random and say, hey, what insight are you on? And they'd always and nearly invariably say, well, I'm kind of stuck on the third because, uh, well, uh, you know, I can't believe my imagination. And that's generally the problem. You know, people don't want to believe their imagination. I was willing to believe my imagination. And it led me, you know, to heights where I'm hanging out with shamans and they're doing stones. I'm meeting 33rd degree Freemasons. They're doing ayahuasca rituals. I'm, you know, what I mean, it's just all happening. And and people limit themselves by their own concepts. And so once I realized the idea of the psychic vampirism of control dramas, and I recognized that other people were on to, and I, I eventually met James Redfield, the author of the Silverstein Prophecies, and I knew I would. Uh, and I asked him, you know, well, where did you come up with this? Of course, everybody asked him that. And he, he says that it was just the basic concepts coming out of sci uh, sociology or psychology at the time. And, and he just wrote it in a story form. So... Boom, here you had it. All of a sudden I had word for it. I could, you know, I could say, you know, here's synchronicity and I've gotten oh, control of my aloof control drama and I've learned how to radiate energy into other beings so that they feel great and want to share with me and, and everything works out great. 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 Final question. Um, do you have any owl stories? <laughs> yeah. Uh, strange one. I have a bat story too. Uh, one that the reason it's memorable is because my friend said it was impossible that it was a wives tale you know no people don't get bats caught in their hair but i did i was i was going to a friend's house and all of a sudden this bat and i got you know wild curly hair and this bat just got stuck in my hair and it was flapping on my head and i'm freaking out you know, and that was shortly out. after you said something about like bats don't get caught in your hair 
no, no, no. My okay. friend, I tried to tell him, Alistair Morrison guy, I tried to tell him this story, which I thought was pretty tame for, for me, and uh, he refused to believe it, and it just always stuck in my head because he just refused to believe it. And he thought, oh, that's a wives' tale, that's a wives' tale. Um, the owl tale, yes. I was charged with possession of raptor parts uh, in, in Utah. <laughs> they, they were trying so hard to catch us with something, and the funny thing is, I was driving around in a van that was completely unregistered, no insurance. The tags were fake. I don't even know where it came from. Somebody gave it to me, you know. And and my tags said Pennsylvania. My driver's license said Florida. And the, the registration was like, I don't remember, Kansas or something. And since I had lived in all three states, I was able to generally cover my ass when the cops were asking me questions. But I never had the three together at the same time. But anyway, I'm in that van and they're trying to get us. They never did. They never did. Like they would always just go, just go. <laughs> like, but um, uh, they 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 found my magical stuff, and in there I had this owl's wing, and I like a full I, wing that you had actually clipped off the entire wing. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine who was a bit of a witchy fellow had found the owl and wanted to do a bit of a ceremony for it, and we did, and and. And then I, I lopped off a wing. And this was a dead cerebral. owl, obviously. Yes, 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 yes. Long dead, long dead owl. Yes. Um, you know, you just find. We didn't know it was. You know, I didn't know anything about possession of raptor parts or anything like that. The reason that I I took the owl's wing was actually because I was you know a modern day shaman and I wanted to use it in ritual for for incense and for like you know smudging and things, and the owl's wing had one white feather that just stuck got stood out and the thing is i have i have a white patch this is another strange mystery about me i have a a, a white patch on the side of my head just which, a little bit of gray hair yeah it's just always grown white there's no pigment so uh yeah it just grows out white it's always been there all my life um but so the, the owl's wing actually had a white patch exactly in the same place. If I held it up to the side of my head, you know, it was like it was mine. And it came off the owl in one foul swoop, just as, a, you know, as if it was a gift to me. Because my friend tried to take the other one and destroyed my, my ceremonial knife, uh, which I eventually had to get polished and fixed, and which is actually an ancient relic that my grandfather took off a dead Turk. Uh, <laughs> ancient war. My granddad was 102 when he died. You know. Wow. Um, great. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure where to go with this. Uh, this was <laughs> well, this went on and on. We started with like I st oh, so one little thing about uh, District of Columbia. Um, the Columbia. There's Columbia. So that that is mostly situated in Maryland. And Maryland was, if I'm not mistaken, settled by. Jesuits and the name Maryland means the land of Mary, Mary Land. So, um, so within Mary Land, you have a a, a a district named after named after Columbia, and both you know Mary would be the personification in sort of the modern Christian realm of a divine feminine deity. Yeah, you know the 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 place that he 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 let's see. He bought it off a man named Pope, George Washington, when they were establishing the District of Columbia. Uh, and I think it was called, uh, it was a connection there with the Pope and, and, and the, 
the hill. I think it was Capitol Hill or Capitol Line. Uh, I wish I could remember that right now, but I don't. Uh, but there's a, there was an interesting little synchronistic uh, connection there with him buying the land from a man named Pope and how it all uh, related. But I forgot it. So that's yeah, it. yeah, and, oh. then, and then the the the, the Capitol building itself uh, was built by uh, the Vatican uh, architect. Uh, who came over to America specifically to uh, to build the the Capitol building, um, which I'm not sure when that would have been. That would have been in the early 1800s, I think. So, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of questions I had. I we answered most of them. The, the I was making notes furiously. We got to some of the stuff. Yeah, you talk fast, and there's I mean, you, it's it's you know. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm a little bit, you know, sort of hit by a whirlwind, which is something I enjoy. I think that's a that's a good experience. But um, yeah, it was great. This went great. <laughs> it's my interdisciplinary studies. Uh, you know, I'm a tangent king, I guess. I I try desperately to to return to the the topic. <laughs> so, yeah, you can try. Sometimes you can't. So we did we did get most of it. Yeah. So um, uh, I will make sure to include uh a a uh couple of YouTube videos on the site. And if you want to suggest something that would be, that would be appropriate, like, you know, some yeah. intro to Freeman or something that or one particular video you like. Yeah, definitely the Columbia video, I think is like the one that, that was near and dear to my heart. And I wish that you could see the original version, but uh, YouTube won't allow it because it has a bit of copyright material in it. Music or? Uh, no, a bit of a clip from HP uh, Lovecraft's Dagon, uh, which Oh my you God, know, if you're, you're studying Sumerian mythology and you want to check it out, it'll blow your mind. Read Zechariah Sitchin and H.P. Lovecraft side by side, and you'll, you know. But uh, you'll see the the version there. That's I, I to me that my Columbia film and my corporate logos are at the heart, the core of everything I do. You'll see that I found every corporate logo that I discuss also in a crop circle. Um, I did have one other major UFO event. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen two major green, U, uh, green fireballs while I was living with a woman who believed she was the bride of Christ who carried around the Holy Grail, which actually was a bowl made out of a meteorite. And that story is crazy. You can get that in my podcast. Um, but I saw two slow-moving green fireballs at that time. And but the the latest UFO thing that has occurred to me, I was surprised that we didn't really get one while we were traveling with Miss Emily. But um, you may not remember it, but go on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we had the whole <laughs> Gilliland experience, but that was almost set up. You know what I mean? It, yeah, it but, yeah, not the same like, feel. But we were on our way it. to the ESO Zone conference, which is a conference of like Satanists and Masons and and stuff together to discuss. I don't know what, <laughs> but I was involved and invited and it was my second time speaking there. And like I do, I like to grab people that have never seen or been anywhere and take them with me. So a couple of friends with me had never seen a mountain. And uh, uh, that was, I love. Oh, you're coming from Kansas, right? Yeah. No, he was from Texas. Okay. But, uh, you know, it was just, it's great to see the world through fresh eyes because I've traveled these roads endlessly. You have no idea how many times I've been around this country. But uh, here we are, me and my friends, and we're traveling up to the ESO Zone Conference where we eventually meet the high priest of the Church of Satan, and we're going through Ogden, Utah. I know and it well. curiously enough, Og is the land in the Bible where the giants lived. And 
Ogden is the Mormon capital there where all of our tax returns for the western half of the continent go. And there's a massive glistering or, you know, crystal castle or temple there, a Mormon temple like the one in, in Salt Lake, but this one's in Ogden. And we, we spot this off on the side. Well, we're directed off the highway and have to go through this crazy like pentagon of turns to get back onto the highway through this detour. And we're, we're detoured through Ogden. So I start filming, you know, because we're sort of circling this, this crazy temple. And we, we finally make it back to the highway. And my friends who are, are kind of into magic are like, they're putting us through a pentagram ritual because we did. We had to make like five lefts to get back to the highway. It was really weird. And we get back on the highway, I think it was 84. Yep. And we're heading up north, you know, heading to Portland for the ESOZone conference. And I see what looks like a, well, a very bright Venus off in the, in the skyline but too big to be a planet, you know, and I'm looking at it and I'm pointing at it. And I finally bring it to the attention of the other two guys in the car. I'm in the back seat; They're both in the front. And I'm like, what is this? You know, uh, this orange globe starts getting bigger and bigger as it heads towards us. And so I get the camera out. I start filming, but it doesn't do any good at night. My camera, you know, I don't know, like most cameras, it was a good one, but it didn't film sure. in, yeah. in the dark. And so I'm not seeing anything on the camera. I'm kind of freaking out, but, I got my friends in there and they don't stop driving. Like he just keeps going. But this, this giant, well, okay. So we see the red orb and then we notice that there's four white orbs on, on, well, two on either side of the red coming with it. And, and so it, as it flew over, it, it was very close to the car. I would say it was about 10,000 feet in the air because the, the mountain range, was right to our, our right. And, and so we could, it, it skimmed right over the mountain range. So it was at only as tall, high as the mountains. But we couldn't tell whether it was a formation of orbs or whether there was actually a V-shaped body that was holding the orbs in place. Now, My could this have been just a conventional aircraft? That, oh, that... God, no, no. It was, it was at least the size of two football fields. Um, once again, massive. Just, and, and, what it had was there was an hour-shaped glass orange l l bulb in the front. What, what date was this? Do you know the day? Yeah, this was, well, well I'd have to look up ESO Zone 2. But I think, it, and you can watch this. I have the video up of the event, but it's called ESO Bites. It's in my TV show section. Um, if it's still up, if Google hasn't taken it down, I guess. Um, I guess I have to go check that, but no, I, I put it back up on YouTube. I'm sure I did. So it's, it, it, it ended up being identical to what everyone described when they described the Phoenix lights, right down to the point that my friend that was not driving was asking me if I saw the two orbs that were spiraling behind the V-shaped craft. And I did not. But I was focusing very hard on my camera and really trying. I was hoping that maybe I could lighten the footage or something when I came home, you know. So I just dedicated myself to getting it on shot. But there's nothing. You can see there's nothing. But I did film our reaction to the whole scenario, which I found really curious because my friends immediately started debating invisible foes that were doubting what they saw. And they were like, well, it wasn't a, a, a group of helicopters. And like, you know, they all knew 
<laughs> we had just seen a big V-shaped anti-gravity craft. Now, personally, I think it was uh, Earth-based. I don't think this was extraterrestrial. I think it's high military. It seemed to be four anti-gravity uh, anti plasma balls that were on the wings of it. I don't know what the hourglass uh, and brace uh, orb would be, but um, you know, it was very clear. It wasn't, you know, it was right over our heads. And so I, I, I instinctively thought it was a high military craft that had just flown over anti-gravity craft. And, and if I was, you know, sort of head of the uh, Air Force and had access to these, you know, craft, I would probably uh, say that they should not fly over the second biggest city in Utah. Well, Ogden? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I asked the kind we stopped at a gas station. I asked the, the, the attendant, you know, you ever see any weird things? And they're like, no, no, don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, we were still, again, like uh, like the Daytona event, all excited about it, you know, so... We're just like jittery and telling them, you know, but uh, <laughs> things happen. You'll tell anyone, you know, but no one, it always like falls like a lead balloon in the room. You're like, damn, damn. Uh, but sure enough, uh, yeah, this, this large V-shaped craft flew over the car and, and then we met the high priest of the church of Satan and it was a very weird week. Um, I've had weeks like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, whatever. And then, you know, uh, the Mormon religion, was founded by Joseph Smith. And, you know, if you read his account of what happened, uh, it sounds very much like a classic UFO abduction account. You know, a light coming through the window, an angel standing at the foot of his bed, um, being, you know, given this uh, grand... Uh, pardon? The magic hat with the, the golden with the tablets. Magic, that came later when he was deciphering the, uh, the, the golden tablets, yeah. So, yeah, the magic hat with the seeing stone. I think the hat was normal, but the stone was magic, so... Right. And then uh, Mitt Romney was wearing underwear the whole uh, campaign with uh, magic Mormon underwear with mm -hmm. uh, inscription on the underwear of a compass, a square, and the letter G, which is on every yeah, the, Mormon underwear. Right. The rituals and everything are identical for Freemasons. And, and if you ever want to get a Mormon away from your door, just study Masonic ritual and then ask them questions about the rituals and they'll be like, uh, uh, I gotta go. <laughs> I do get them at my door sometime. I live in a, in a Mormon town. So, um, I don't have to lock my door though. I do have to say that. So and I right. leave the key, my key in the ignition. So there, um, I can say that for my little Mormon town. No doubt. No doubt. But Battlestar Galactica is the, the Mormon creation myth brought out into a science fiction mythos. And so where we're at right now, as I was saying with Robonaut two on the international space station, hanging out with the six adult stem cells, um, we are at that moment of clones and drones and, you know, this, this never goes well, uh, for any civilization. And of course in Battlestar Galactica, they say it all happened before it'll all happen again. And it does seem that this is inevitable. It is inevitable that mankind would want to recreate himself in a mechanism as, as a, a robot. And we're coming out right now with Roboy. Uh, I just put an article up on freemantv.com about it. Uh, and I'm, I'm databasing this stuff in the future outlook section on my website. And then also the space war news, uh, I database that as well. And, you know, that's where you'll come up with Robonaut 2 and the telepresence robots, the ideas of mind transfer technologies. And I, I, I really think that this is the next critical juncture and we really got to start getting open debate on all of these topics. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, it seems like that's one of the, when people would keep on saying like, oh, 2012, you know, it's going to be the dawn of a new age. And you know, I was never quite sure. But what I do feel confident saying is that, that you know, collectively so many things are happening uh, in the scientific arena, uh, just, you know, the quantum computing as well as, you know, our genetic gene splicing. All these things are seem to be reaching a critical point where, uh, the the impact it'll have on humanity will change things, yeah. uh, if it proceeds along the you know the path that it's going. You know, uh, you know who knows what the future will bring, but you know I do I do have this feeling that you know there's a lot of profound uh, events that could impact the trajectory of humanity. Yeah, the the and the most profound one, of course, is extraterrestrial contact. You know, I love the way the the Disney UFO documentary goes, or the Alien Encounter, uh, where well, first of all, it's titled "UFOs Are Real," but then they're they're adamant statements of the inevitable contact with extraterrestrial beings. You know, they don't even put a hint of doubt into the the scenario when they're making this, and of course, then get into all the horrific genetic manipulations and things that the aliens are doing. I was shocked that that came out through Walt Disney, but. I know Disney much more than most, and maybe we can do a whole show on Disney sometime. Yeah, and actually, it's funny. As a little kid, as a twelve-year-old kid, I wanted to be a uh, animator for Disney. So yeah, thank uh, God you didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. I've met some animators for Disney, and and uh, they seemed a little burned out and stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, whatever. My path didn't 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 take me that way. It's funny. I uh, I moved to New York City, and I thought that was much much more exciting than Disneyland. So. Well, so we should mention that we are both in the sync book too. Oh, that's and... right. That's on my list. My sync book too is right here on the on my desk, and so I'm holding it in my hand. Yes, you and I are both along with uh, Lauren Coleman and uh, Dr. Kirby Surprise, um, Roder X, Frank Zero, Trish and Rob. Mag- I've interviewed Trish and Rob McGregor. I want to interview um, Dr. Kirby Surprise. I've been emailing him, and he's he's up for it. So, um, yeah, very. Oh, and so so. Uh, uh, and and uh, the uh, Trish and Rob McGregor are have been had published a book on synchronicity, and uh, and I did an interview about that book, and then uh, their next book, which they're just about to publish, husband and wife team, they publish books together. Their next book is called, um, I think it's called UFOs in the Backyard or Aliens in the Backyard, where they follow uh the psychic phenomena that's related to close extra et contact or close ufo contact so well, the next thing i got coming is weird stuff and i'm hoping to to blow everybody's minds with this uh, it's a, a final foundational stone for the entire hypothesis that we've been discussing for you know a decade now or two for me um and and so weird stuff is really going to be where it's at when you want to start to understanding the the founding principles of what's going on, and we we will be taking it extraterrestrial as the editions come out. And it's a, it's a magazine. Yeah, well, it's a it's, it's it's kind of like man, myth, and magic in a way, in that it's it's a bit of encyclopedia, but it's written in a tabloid format. Not to say that it's tabloid material, but it's laid out with imagery and and you know fun. <laughs> and so it's it's uh the first one's called operation culture creation and it'll come out in three parts so throughout the year and then this actually gets deep into 
how society is being manipulated through the social engineering of, uh, you know, people like Walt Disney and many other culture crafts that we, we discuss. And then uh, it, it lays it out into the high profile rituals, the occult natures of, uh, you know, American Idol and, and Katy Perry, and it'll get even deeper. And then we get into the political spectrums with the next one that comes out as Sorcerers of Atlantis. And that will get more deep into ancient astronaut hypothesis, you know, all of this correlating and corresponding with modern uh, topical events and how they interrelate and stuff. So I'm I'm really excited because weird stuff's going to finally define what I've been saying. And this will be in a paper format you can hold in your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can order it now. Actually, and so we got pre-orders going on. We are uh, heading. We are trying to get the ISSN number all correlated and and get the printers ready so we're hoping by the end of the month that we're, we've got this to the printers i don't know how long it takes from that moment on to get the copies out but uh we're hoping by the end of this month we got uh, weird stuff part one number one on the books on the shelves great great i'm yeah. all for it we've been working on it for years that's the thing and we've already got the other nine well we've got six of them laid out and uh so it's just going to be nonstop writing and writing and, and stuff from here on out, really. But it's I, we're bringing in material that we didn't know and we're correlating, you know, because we're having to get deeper and deeper into each of the things that we've discussed all along, like many of the things we've talked about tonight. But when you write about it, you always got to you know get deeper. So it's really going to get deep into these understandings so that we can really recognize these signs and symbols and symbolic gestures and what their purpose is and where the direction is of it is going. Yes, it seems like there's a, how to say it, um, you know, if all of this stuff you say is true, and in some form or another I'm convinced it is, uh, the, uh, you know, whatever, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah, and that's the that's the truth of the matter. And, and what I feel like where I stand out from the rest of the truth movement, as it will, it, is that, I, I, I know a lot of humans. And so I came at this with a love for humanity and an understanding of who they are at their core. So that's the big difference that sets me apart is that I actually love humanity and I, I have every bit of faith in humanity. What we're seeing is, is uh, psychopathy that's being engineered. You know, it's not natural. So I know humans can just go right back to their natural state of love and care and curing. They, yeah, I agree. That's actually something I've, I've uh, spent a lot of time working in the outdoors and I get to see people. It's very interesting when you, when you take people and strip them away from, from the things that they, they perceive as their identity, you know, their clothes, their house, their music, um, and then take them into a wilderness environment um, where they can't change their clothes, right? You're just got all the clothes you can carry in your backpack and um, you can't listen to music. And, and I find that people, uh, you see the best in them. It's really yeah. amazing experience. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. People are fantastic, and you, all of you out there, you're all my angels, and I'm yours. You know. Yeah, well said. Great. I will keep you in touch, or keep in touch, and um, and uh, when that book come, when that you know that the series of books come out, I will I'll make sure to put something up on the on the site. All right, you got it. Okay. All right, Mike. It was a great time. Thanks so much. All right, Mike. Hi, this is Mike. I am chiming in uh, at the end of the editing process. 
And uh, you know, what I just what I one of the things I do when I prep for these interviews is I write down a bunch of questions and and I actually think about them and kind of try to write them out, you know, formally. They they read like little uh, essays themselves. And it just helps me, you know, I actually don't read from them that often, but it helps me uh, wrap my mind around, uh, you know, what I'm getting into and the, and the, you know, sort of the frame, how I want to frame the interview. You know, I, I said as much to Freeman during the interview, but I just want to read it here formally. Here goes. As I listen to your interviews and watch your videos, I am swept away with all the images and your interpretations. Your research is so full of connections and ideas that the logical side of my brain simply can't keep up. It gets overloaded. Are your conclusions literal truth? I don't know. I guess I'm forced to abandon my intellect on some level and simply follow your work using my intuition. What happens is I find myself in a place where I can more easily tap into your insights. What happens is I absorb what you're trying to tell me in a more mythic way. I reap the benefits of the deepest parts of your research. To me, this might be a tidy way to define mythology and its vital benefits. Now, I'm not sure what to think, but I sense if it's not literal, there is a mystical truth emerging. Now, that may sound a little bit like gobbledygook, but it did kind of uh, help me uh, wrap my brain around um, some of the some of the stuff that, that he's uh, laying down. Now, I'm going to read one more question, which is less a question and more a comment um, that I wrote down ahead of time, you know, once again, you know, to prep, you know, my mindset as I stepped into this interview. Here goes. Do you see all these connections as a cabal of insanely wealthy men plotting in secret? For me, that might account for some of this weirdness, but for me, it might be even stranger than that. The more interesting way to try to hold this in my reality is that there could be a kind of synchronistic order where these connections emerge not from linear facts, but from some mystical order that wants to put clues in our path. And that sums up um, how I feel about a lot of uh, what would be described as you know more intense conspiracy theories. And, and maybe that's just me being frightened to fully believe that some of the horrendous stuff that seems to be going on behind the curtain is actually occurring. So, you know, maybe that's just a way out for me. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.